Are we good, everyone? Yep. Yeah. We are, Kurt, you ready? Yes. Okay. We're good. All right. I'll get on the right thing here. Welcome, everyone, to the Tuesday, June 14th, 2022 City Commission meeting. To begin with, we will have an executive session. Uh, when we return, we will um, give the public some notes on how the meeting will proceed. But at this time, I will um, just entertain a motion. I would move that we recess an executive session for approximately 30 minutes to discuss privileged legal communications from the city's attorney regarding the legal basis for department policy pursuant to KSA 75-4319B2. Justification for the executive session is to keep attorney-client privilege matters confidential at this time. The City Commission will resume its regular meeting in the County Commission room after the executive session is concluded at approximately 5.32. Second. I have a first and a second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 Uh, passes five to zero. Thank you. Reporting in progress. Welcome again, everyone, uh, to the City Commission meeting. Um, we have nothing to report. Um, I don't know that I need a motion to wait the next 15 minutes, but just so that anyone's waiting here watching, um, this meeting will begin at 545. Five forty-five. Uh, Porter, Kurt, are we ready? We're ready. Welcome again, everyone, to the Tuesday, June 14th, 2022 City Commission meeting. Um, first, we will begin with some um, explanation of how we um, go about things from Porter. Thank you, Mayor. Good evening, everybody. I just have a few housekeeping items for this Zoom meeting tonight. This meeting is being recorded and broadcast on the city's YouTube channel and cable channel 25. Please remember to mute yourself during the meeting unless you are speaking. The chat function for this public meeting is disabled. All chats will go directly to me. <clears throat> Excuse me. Unless you are participating during the meeting, please turn your video off. This allows the active meeting participants to be seen on screen. You will still be able to hear the meeting. When you are participating in the meeting, please turn your video on. If you have any trouble, you can send me a chat. The city reserves the right to mute people or turn individual videos off to minimize distractions during the meeting. And now I'll turn the meeting back over to Mayor Shipley. Thank you, Porter. Um, next, we'll have some explanation about how public comment works from Sherry. 
Thank you, Mayor. When the mayor calls for in-person public comment, individuals attending in person should approach the podium to indicate they wish to speak. The podium can be raised and lowered, and we encourage you to use this function to ensure your comments are heard. Please remember to state your name before speaking. Individuals participating via Zoom should use the raise hand function to indicate they wish to speak. When you are called on, please unmute and state your name before speaking. All comments will be limited to three minutes. Thank you, Mayor. Thank you. Uh, that brings us to um, approving the agenda. City Commission reserves the right to amend, supplement, or reorder the agenda during the meeting. Do I have any um, Recommendations to change the order or uh, motions to approve? Move to approve the agenda. Second. I have a first and second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 None opposed? That passes five to zero. Um, that moves us to the recognition proclamation. And I believe uh, Marcus Logan is here. Um, would you like to speak first or would you like me to read it first and then you come and make your comments? Okay. <laughs> Whereas Juneteenth is the oldest known celebration of the ending of slavery dating back to June 19th, 1865, the day on which Union soldiers landed at Galveston, Texas, with news that war had ended and that all slaves were now free, even though President Lincoln had signed the Emancipation Proclamation two and a half years earlier. And whereas Juneteenth has become a tradition of celebrations that began following reading of the proclamation by General Gordon Granger in 1865 that has lasted over 150 years and today is hosted in cities across America, featuring rich traditions, including celebrations in the form of festivals, parades, and oral histories, also known as Freedom Day. It has continued to be a highly revered event across the country as at a time for honoring one another and the memory of all those who endured slavery and especially those who moved from slavery to freedom. And whereas Juneteenth allows people of all races, nationalities and religions in cities across the country to join hands and acknowledge a period in our history that shaped and continues to influence our society today. And whereas Juneteenth today celebrates African-American freedom while also encouraging self-development and respect for all cultures, and whereas Lawrence and Douglas County will commemorate Juneteenth with a number of events from June 16th through June 19th, 2022. Now, therefore, I, Courtney Shipley, Mayor of the City of Lawrence, Kansas, do hereby proclaim June 19th, 2022, as Lawrence Juneteenth celebration, and call upon all residents, government agencies, public and private institutions, businesses, and schools to commit our community to increasing awareness and understanding of our shared history and how it shapes our lives today. I'm here as a representative of the Lawrence, Kansas Juneteenth organization. My name is Marcus Logan. I've been a member for five years, former vice president. And we'd just like to invite everyone here and watching uh, to our celebration this Saturday, June 18th in South Park. We're going to start with the parade at 11 a.m. And then we'll commence at the actual celebration from 12 to 8. It is about a certain culture, but we're inviting all people to come out to have a good time with us. We're in the heart of the city. You can't miss us. We're going to have a great time. So if you can stop by, we'll be there for about eight hours, actually about 12 when you include cleanup. But um, 
we just appreciate you guys reading the proclamation for us here today. Thank you for inviting us and we hope you all come out and celebrate with us. Thank you. Thank you very much. I know I will be there. Um, that brings us now to our consent agenda. All matters listed on the consent agenda are considered under one motion and will be approved by one motion. There will be no separate discussion on those items. If discussion is desired, that item will be removed from the consent agenda and will be considered separately. Members of the public wishing to speak to an item that has been pulled off the consent agenda will be limited to three minutes. Um, are there any uh, commissioners who would like to pull something from the consent agenda? Uh, none. Is there anyone here in the room who would like to pull something from the consent agenda? Good evening, commissioners. My name is Maria Ferredo. I'm with uh, uh, Sanctuary Alliance, Lawrence, Kansas, and I am formally requesting we remove item D6, consider adopting on first reading ordinance number 9920 from the consent agenda and open this item for community discussion. Thank you. Thank you. Are there any other items from the, oh. My name is Michael Lawrence Accountability. I'd like to pull D as in David to A alpha. Thank you. I, I'm Chris Flowers. I like to pull, I think it's D9A about the DARE Center. All right, thank you. Anyone else in the audience wanna pull anything? Okay, let's check online. Is there anyone on the Zoom uh, who would like to remove something that has not already been removed? Uh, there are no additional items. Okay, let's move forward then. Uh, do I have any motions? Yeah, I'll make a motion. Um, I move to approve the consent agenda with the following exceptions, D2A, D6A, and D9A. Okay. I have a first and a second. All those in favor? Aye. Aye. That's five to zero. Um, let's go then to item D2A. D2A. Again, my name is Michael Lawrence Accountability. The reason I pulled this item is I want to make sure that the commission is fully aware. I know I sent emails to each one of you, but I want to make sure you're fully aware of what occurred Thursday evening. The chief of police admitted at a public meeting that it's common practice for the police department to threaten charges to law-abiding citizens to gain compliance against civil rights. I recorded an officer who didn't like me following him. He even admitted this on film. I was not in the middle of any street. As you looked in the video, if the police had provided, you can see that there was no middle of the street contact. I went from curb to curb on both streets. But the chief sat here and said that not only did that threat occur, but that it's common practice. Now, if we question whether it's common practice, I went ahead and went out on the street and talked to some police officers. I came up with a 50-50 split. It's no wonder that Adam Zarnowick would know that you couldn't do that. I've never seen that man do anything that made me question his commitment to the city or to his profession. And he's taken enough time to know enough that policy at LPD does not cover everything. But at the same time as he knows it, there are other officers and including a supervisor that doesn't. 
you're going to hear a supervisor discussing to me what his thoughts are on threatening charges. You know, your chief uh, admitted to some federal crimes at the community police review board meeting this past week. I haven't even watched any of them. You really should. 127.35 is the time marker. All right. He literally admitted that it's a practice, common practice for you guys to use threats of charges to gain compliance. You do realize there's federal codes against that, right? Like, I, I don't know what you want me to say. I, I, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm visiting with people on the street to make sure you guys are aware that there's federal codes against something that you don't have a policy for. I would have to confirm with some research for myself to get myself more uh, proficient with it. I would please ask that you do that. It's a, it's a okay, that's a sergeant on the street that needs to do more research to understand civil rights. I don't think it gets any clearer than that, guys, and I won't take any up any more time. Uh, thank you. Uh, any questions from commissioners? Discussion? Uh, do we need to look for a motion? Uh, Mayor, we'll need to see if anybody... Oh, I'm sorry. Is there any public comment on this item? Online and Zoom, is there any public comment on this item? There isn't, Mayor, and since you're just receiving the minutes, you do not need to make a motion. You're not approving the minutes. Okay. Uh, that brings us, I think, to D6. A, yes. A. Well, Let's let the person who pulled it speak first. <laughs> Sorry, Zach. <laughs> yeah. Hello again, commissioners, and thank you for pulling this agenda item. In early fall of 2019, Sanctuary Alliance agreed to collaborate with Lawrence City staff on behalf of the community to create an ordinance to uplift and protect some of our most vulnerable community members. After over a year of organizing community input and consultation from legal experts on immigration, the ordinance was passed. However, with the recent signing of State Bill H, uh, HB 2717, protections for community members with differing citizenship statuses have been endangered. And as a result, we are required to review our own ordinance to ensure compliance with state law that will be enacted July 1st. While we do encourage compliance, we dedicate ourselves to putting affected community members first and fighting to guarantee we're doing everything within our power to maintain distance between federal organizations aimed at harming this community. What you have before you today are a series of proposed amendments to both the city ordinance and police policy that we had worked so hard on to create and maintain. We have been invited for a very brief discussion on the intention to make those revisions and have had even less time to review and provide necessary feedback. We are ready to collaborate again with the city to maintain community-focused policies and hope for the space necessary to do this work equitably. As it stands, we cannot in good faith and in the protection of our community as our guide condone these amendments made without community and expert input. So we are asking the following to occur before amendments be presented for a vote. 
require a consultation with an immigration policy expert to review our current ordinance, the, pol the police policy, HB 2717, and the recommended amendments created by city attorney staff and the Lawrence Police Department. We require continued co collaboration with grassroots organization Sanctuary Alliance to craft language and amend only the necessary pieces for both ordinance and police policy. Do not add nor strike language that could result in local law enforcement potentially discriminating against community members, inquiring about citizenship status, or responding to matters that are a civil violation and not under the purview of Lawrence Police Department. Without an intentional review of our current ordinance and the opportunity to craft language that is upholding the protections of our community, we put ourselves in a position to adhering to the fear-mongering and oftentimes xenophobic and racist rhetoric of some of our state legislators. If we attempt to amend this ordinance and police policy in haste, we will mirror the unjust behaviors of the state legislator who rather than supporting all Kansans made the rush decision to create a climate of fear and harm. My fellow Sanctuary Alliance members are here today and available both in person on Zoom and on Zoom Fine. to provide specific. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Um, well, then that brings us to staff. Hello, commissioners. Let me raise this up. Just hold it and it'll, there, there we go. Good evening. I'm Zach Friedel, I'm an assistant city attorney, and I'm gonna talk you through the current ordinance, uh, the changes in state law and the proposed changes in the city ordinance uh, before you. So first of all, the portion of the city code affected is chapter one, article 10 of the city code. That ordinance was created, uh, uh, that code was created in Ordinance 9736, and it's an affirmation by the city that it is an inclusive community that values immigrants and the diversity they bring to the city's cultural fabric, economic growth, and global competitiveness. Uh, you heard that this was the result of a lot of hard work. It predates me. I can't uh, claim any credit in it, but it was a collaboration between city staff, uh, Sanctuary Alliance, commissioners, the public, um, and other interested parties. It was a lot of work. It got passed uh, on September 15th, 2020 by the city commission on a vote of five to zero. Then came the Kansas legislature on February 22nd of this year, Attorney General Derek Schmidt requested the introduction of House Bill 2717. That bill was specifically in response to a safe and secure, or excuse me, uh, welcoming city ordinance that was passed in Wyandotte County, but it applies to all municipalities in Kansas. The bill had a hearing on March 15th in the House Committee on Federal and State Affairs. There were seven proponents written and oral, including a representative from the Attorney General's office. There were 66 opponents, including Mayor Shipley for the city, Sanctuary Alliance, the Roland Park Mayor, the Douglas County Sheriff, the Wyandotte and Douglas County District Attorneys, and two Douglas County uh, Commissioners. The bill passed the House on a vote of 84 to 38. On the Senate side, there were two proponents, again, one being the Attorney General, and 24 opponents. The bill passed the Senate on a vote of 29 to 10. The governor approved the bill on April 11, 2020. So that brings us to what does the bill do and how does it affect Lawrence? Well, section two of the bill states that no municipality will enact an ordinance, resolution, rule, or policy that limits law enforcement officers or other local government employees from sharing information about citizenship or immigration status with federal officials, 
from sending or receiving such information with the Department of Homeland Security, for obtaining or maintaining such information, or from exchanging that information with other government entities. Section three also states that a municipality shall not limit or restrict the enforcement of federal immigration laws. The bill also does a couple of things that don't affect the city. Since it was targeted at Wyandotte County, it speaks to um, IDs that Wyandotte County intended to offer. So as far as enforcement, the bill states that any ordinance, resolution, rule, or policy that violate the provisions of information sharing is null and void. It also states that the attorney general or county or district attorney may bring an action to compel compliance with the law. And if a court finds that a municipality or other person or entity is violated, uh, has violated, is violating, or is about to violate any provision of the bill, the court shall enjoin the municipality, person, or entity to comply with the act. It is important to note that this bill goes into effect on July 1st of this year. With that in mind, you have in front of you Ordinance 9920. This ordinance strikes several provisions of Chapter 1, Article 10, Sections 1, 1003, and 1, 1004. It could be counter to the dictates of House Bill 2717. It does not add any new language. Um, instead, it strikes provisions that prohibit city employees, including police officers, municipal court employees, and human resources employees from requesting, documenting, or sharing the immigration status of, uh, of individuals. The Lawrence Police Department has also updated their corresponding policy to comply with House Bill 2717, and I believe uh, representatives of the Police Department will be able to answer questions about that as well. After a review of the House Bill and current city ordinance, we believe this is the least amount that can be stricken to comply with the state law. In speaking with Sanctuary Alliance, I understand their request to require consultation with an attorney, uh, continued collaboration, and not add or strike any language about uh, questioning immigration status. Uh, I think that city staff would certainly be willing and uh, to continue working with Sanctuary Alliance in any uh, manner that the city commission directs us to do so. Uh, but for the purposes of the ordinance that are here before you today, the goal is to bring the city into compliance with state law, uh, first and foremost. I'd be happy to answer any questions at the appropriate time. Are there any questions from commissioners? Uh, so just to be clear, we have till July 1st to comply with the state or um, they will compel compliance, I think is what you said. Um, uh, regarding any further consultation with um specialized attorneys um i'm not aware that we're in a position to do that at this time at the city um but is it possible for um community organizations or members to find such counsel in the next month uh is, is the question, could they consult with other attorneys uh, and, and maybe bring those ideas back to us? Absolutely. And we'd be happy to talk with them and collaborate in any way uh, you direct. Okay. Uh, any other questions from? I have one, I have a question. Throughout the, the original ordinance, we use a language in there through, peppered throughout the ordinance about except when, um, as, except as otherwise required by law. So why wouldn't that cover us in all of these various changes that you're requesting? 
That's a good question, and perhaps it would. Perhaps we could say that the ordinance is, uh, is on the books, the, the code is on city uh, books, but it is not being enforced, is not being, um, uh, and uh, it's not having any purpose. Uh, I think it's our goal as city attorneys to make sure that the city code uh, reflects what is uh, permissible, and it also avoids any potential repercussions from the actions that uh, the bill uh, contemplates, which is an action by uh, the, dis, uh, the attorney general or any district or county attorney. So with that being said, if we were to leave it as is and let the time roll over to July 1, there's nothing as stated in, what is it, section six? There's nothing that says that the attorney general or the district attorney could bring, could they like bring that to attention, bring the file and file against us to say that we have language in our ordinance that violates state statute and that piece as well. Yes, there, there are kind of two provisions. One, there's uh, the provision that any information sharing prohibition in city policy or ordinance would um, be null and void. And the second is that the attorney general or county or district attorney could compel compliance through the courts. And if a court found that we we're in violation or about to violate, then it, uh, they could compel compliance. Did you say the, through the district attorney? Yes. yes, that is another provision that is available in the bill. So the fact that it's already written, it's already codified in statute that our ordinance is null and void if it has any of this language. So keep maintaining it brings a target, it could potentially bring a target on our back that, that could bring either the attorney general or even locally, our county district attorney could force us to comply. Correct. Have we had any um, conversations or have they contacted us saying that that we have problem with your ordinance as it's written now? I'm not aware of any such communication. Um, no. Any other questions? I remind you that uh, we can direct questions to the person who uh, pulled this from consent as well. Okay, let's go ahead and open this to public comment. Hello, City Commissioners. My name is Lacey Rowe, and I'm a member of the Sanctuary Alliance. I'd like to alert the commissioners to a few of the most serious concerns within policy changes that we see today. First, I want to point out that undocumented immigration status is a civil violation, not a criminal violation. While the state policy prohibits the restriction of cooperation with ICE, it does not grant local police powers to independently address federal matters that fall beyond their scope of work. The fact still stands that state and local police have no authority to arrest and detain a person for a federal civil violation. Detention or extended holding by local police can constitute a warrantless arrest and a violation of the Fourth Amendment. Notably, Section 1-1042A of the City Code does retain this requirement for the police policy to include provisions that prohibit, prohibit arrest and detention based solely on civil cause. However, the police policy strikes this required pr provision in Sections 4 
414.3 and 414.8, thus removing that protection from a violation of the Fourth Amendment. Additionally, poor wording within the police policy in Section 414.9 offers unclear interpretation on whether to provide public notice if it may interfere with federal activities. However, local police have an obligation to provide public notice for the sake of transparency in their own activities, and there is no reason for this to cause interference with immigration enforcement's ability to enforce federal civil warrants for federal civil violations. Notably, Section 1-1042C, the, the city code requires LPT, L, LPD to provide an alert to the public as soon as possible without violating state or federal law. Research consistently shows that if res residents associate their police with immigration enforcement, then the fear of getting deported or losing a loved one can prevent, prevent immigrants and people in mixed status families from reporting crimes or coming forward as witnesses. And this not only inhibits the ability of our police to investigate crimes that fall under their jurisdiction, but it also diminishes public safety. Since immigration is a federal responsibility, cities and counties are not required to enforce federal immigration law in any way, and the Tenth Amendment guarantees freedom from federal co commandeering of local resources. Though the state policy prohibits the restriction of certain actions, the city can still offer guidance on appropriate use of city resources. If we don't assert control over local resources, then we're not only inviting uncertainty about whether our resources are being used efficiently, but we're also exposing ourselves to legal liabilities and risks which are not remedied by existing ICE compliance options. We can still highlight local priorities for the use of limited local resources. We can still ensure that the proper authorities are empowered to do their job. Jobs. We can still do more to uphold human rights, strengthen community trust, and ensure fiscal accountability. With the help of an immigration policy expert and collaboration with the Sanctuary Alliance, the city can offer guidance on prioritizing fiscal accountability and thus the use of local resources for public safety and local responsibilities. Thank you. Is there further public comment in the room? Wow. I, she said it all. About the only thing I can add to that, I've been asked my immigration status twice in my life. One time when I joined the military and one time when I came back from Canada. I'm a tall white guy. Does that explain it? Any further comment in the room, in the audience? Anyone online? Uh, any on the Zoom who would like to make public comment on this item? Yes, this yes. is Kimball Williams. Sorry, I was echoing for a second. Um, I think it's so, so important. Um, Lawrence is a very unique community in terms of having two universities here. Um, we're unique in terms of Kansas, even the Midwest to a certain degree. And any time that we can, um, as Lacey was saying, you know, really take control of our local resources and how, what kind of culture are we going to foster here? Is it one of inclusivity? Is it one where, uh, where people feel safe, where, you know, crime is lower, where all, all of these benefits that have been researched and evidenced in terms of uh, sanctuary policies. Um, and I think that our previous work together has shown that the city is interested in that. And so I'm really looking forward to uh, to seeing what uh, what everybody comes up with and how um, we in Sanctuary Alliance can, can aid the goal that I think the city also has of being um, as inclusive as we can be uh, while still being compliant with state laws. And I think the 
the spirit of our of our legislation and our collaboration previously was with that um, with that in mind. You know, we did, like Lisa Larson said, have these provisions in place of you know, except as you know, federal law or other law uh, prohibits us. And so, um, I think as long as we continue that um, the spirit of what we originally set out to do, that we can find something. And I encourage city staff to make the time and for us to meet and to find to find that together and to um, learn from our community, you know, COVID may have changed um, some of what they need and may have even increased our need to be protective and inclusive. And so um, I would hope that in our process, considering that, um, you know, and I think the last thing that I'll say, because I've got a wiggling baby, um, is uh, that um, discrimination absolutely happens. Police officers do inquire about information like this. It's not, this is not a, uh, a, a, uh, you know, something that could happen or might happen. It's something that does happen. And so we need to act with that knowledge that this is not a, um, a theoretical, sorry, this is not a theoretical uh, thing that could be happening, but that it is happening and it does result in harm. And uh, people in my own family have been negatively impacted. So it's not just people um, with different immigration and citizenship statuses that I think all people of color in our community as well impacted by, um, by policies like this. Thank you. Thank you so much. Anyone else on, online or on Zoom who would like to make comment? I'm not seeing any other hands raised, Mayor. All right, let's bring that back to the commission then. Oh, I'm sorry. I think the danger is that the police- I'm sorry, could you tell us your name? My name is Joe Taylor. I'm married to Eduardo. Rosa Molinar, who is an American citizen from birth, born in Puerto Rico, but that didn't prevent him from being stopped by a police officer and for supposedly taking a curve too quickly off of Highway 10 onto 23rd Street. The police officer asked for his ID. He supplied it, driver's license. He had a K, his KU emblem you know, pass, and the police officer said, do you have any more form of identification to show you're a citizen? This is a police officer before all of this. This was four years ago. So my husband said, I really don't think you have the right to ask that question. So this is a road I think you need to be careful about going down. Your police officers are already a little zealous about about this and this will give them part more thank you thank you just one last check any other public comment in the room or online i had one more question for staff if that's okay with you one more person so oh, we did okay go ahead go ahead go ahead uh maureen horowitz okay Hey, um, my name is Maria Arwitz, um, and I thank you so much for this discussion and the questions you all have been raising. Um, as everyone said so well, I 
think we need time to have an immigration policy expert carefully review our ordinance and HB 2717. And we need the city to continue work with Sanctuary Alliance and community to thoughtfully revise the ordinance. We don't um, lose necessary protections. We need our ordinance to reflect the reality that legally immigration is a simple matter that should not involve local police. And last, we need the the city to work with Sanctuary Alliance to fight for better protections on a state level. Um, I've said it here before, my mother's family was from a Hungarian village. And the way my grandmother and mother told it, in that village, Jews and Christians had lived and worked together for generations. And when the Nazis came, it didn't matter. And every Jew in that village, except for two, was slaughtered. So I have really strong beliefs that we should not claim any kind of powerlessness in the face of laws that we know are vile. And HB 2717 is a vile bill. Um, it'll destroy people's lives. I think we all know that we can't say that we're being pragmatic because after all, there are no good choices. Um, when the stakes are this high and so much work, time and love went into passing an ordinance that provides these very basic human protections Failing to take every possible effort to protect people from a terrible state law is collaborating with it. And I really hope we're better than that. Thank you so much. Thank you, Maureen. Anyone else? Just last call. All right, uh, Commissioner? Yeah, I'd want, I had another question for staff. Um, so I just want to make sure I understand this, right? As I'm uh, the policy, I read through that and the changes, the red line changes. Um, so we, where we have stricken out some previous language, does that mean we're going to start doing enforcement on that? Just as an example, I'm looking at, um, let's see, 414.8, about... Um, Halfway down, it says L LPD members will not initiate contact with an individual for the sole purpose of assisting ICE. And the other thing they say is uh, LPD members may not detain, arrest, or transport a person solely based on a civil immigration detainer or administrative order, uh, warrant. The individual must have a criminal warrant issued by a court or underlying pro probable cause. So since we're striking that out, does that mean we will initiate contact? In assisting ICE, in that we this, we in that in that we will detain even without a warrant. Commissioner, this policy change makes no uh, affirmative requirements of police officers or anyone else in the city. This is only striking prohibitions against that action. Okay. So there's no plan to actually start doing this. Is that That's that that opens it up to be able to do that? Though is that correct? It's not prohibited in this policy any longer. Okay. okay. Commissioner, uh, Adam, excuse me, Major Adam Heffley, Lawrence Police Department, if I may. No, there, there is no plan to start doing this action. This isn't something we had done prior to the ordinance. It isn't something we will do uh, regardless of the House bill that has been passed. Uh, striking that language is a reaction to uh, language in the House bill that, that requires us to not have a prohibition in policy of assisting or any of those actions uh, that we've discussed with uh, staff attorneys. But no, this does not change uh, what we value and our 
desire to work and protect, uh, work with and protect the community that we serve. Thank you. I have one, just one more quick question. If you want to answer. I know we talked about the piece of immigration, you know, anything following in regards to immigration law is civil, but if there is a violation of anything that's brought, you know, if, if there's, if a civil law is violated, is that then civil prosecution or does that, can that become a criminal? Piece. Can someone be brought? Can, I guess can someone be? If someone violates some, uh, immig an immigration law, or uh, there's a violation, an immigration violation, can they be brought up on criminal charges? Uh, Commissioner, I'm not sure that I fully understand. Uh, Is there criminal charges would only be filed or pursued by the police department if a law, a criminal law, was violated. So okay. I would just add uh, a local or state criminal law was violated. Uh, police department doesn't enforce federal law. Okay. Thank you. I, I, I'm trying to make, I'm, I'm trying to get this somewhere here and I, and I didn't know if I was getting there. And, and again, I'm trying to shoot this out of the dark um, only to make a point. I think there's like a little bit of a 50, 50 point here that I, you know, I want, I think there needs to be more look into this. Um, knowing our political climate, knowing where we are in proximity to why this, why this bill or why, why this bill became law. I don't, like I said before, I don't want to, I don't want to put a target on our back at the same time. Do it's, I do feel like there are some areas that can be brought, um, you know, that I think it could take some additional eyes to take a look at, you know, whether it's immigration, some additional eyes to look um, to see if there's something that we either miss or there's another opportunity for us to to maybe re either relax this or and not make it so confined. I don't know. I'm I'm kind of jumping back and forth about this because I'm just a little too, I don't want to say I'm close to the situation. I just know behaviors and I don't want us because of our welcomingness and who we are as a community to, for that to be, for us to be attacked. And I think that's what this boils down to is that I don't want us to be attacked. Now I don't, I do want there to be more communication and I would like to see, um, I'd like to see um, just be brought up, you know, with an, an immigration lawyer and, and come back with some feedback on language or suggested language or recommended language to, to bring back to the commission for us to review and possibly make changes. There's nothing that says I can't do that. That's the beauty of this process. Um, but I think if we allow ourselves to, to, to keep this as is going into the next year, you know, past July 1, I'm, I'm just, I'm terribly worried that this brings a, a little bit of attention to us that I, I just don't want us to have. And I don't want it to, to get in the way of the good work that we have done and what we do for our community, so. Uh, Commissioner, in response to your, uh, the idea of maybe having a target on our back, I wanted to provide you a little bit of context that there are three communities in Kansas that have uh, this type of ordinance. Uh, it's Wyandotte County, it's Roland Park, and it's Lawrence. 
Wyandotte County uh, made amendments to their uh, ordinance at last week's meeting. Roland Park, I think, is intending to amend their ordinance at next week's meeting. Um, so the other communities are taking action to comply with the state law. It is not passed Roland Park, but it has passed in Kansas City. Do we know whether or not they've consulted outside council or if city staff worked with an immigration lawyer or someone that has immigration law, you know, that subject matter expertise to look at their policy to provide suggestions, feedback, consultation on it? I'm sorry, I don't know their process or what they used. Commissioner. Question for you, um, Zach. The, technically on the agenda is just the the adoption of an amendment, first reading of an adoption of an amendment for the resolution, correct? Correct. And, and we have to have two readings and our last meeting of the month is next month, next week, right? Um, so that's why we have this week and next week to have it in effect by July 1, is that true? Correct. But the the, the police, the, the police policy um, to the extent there's work being done on it. it anytime before July 1, it could be changed by the, the police chief. We don't technically, I know I think last time we voted on it maybe, but under this, we don't have an amendment. We don't have a motion in front of us to vote on the exact language of the policy of the police policy, do we? No, there's no motion. So we still have over two weeks to continue to work on that language before July 1. Is that true? I believe so. You can ask uh, uh, Major Heffley if you have any Follow-up questions. Well, I guess the question for you was, we don't have to take action to change that policy. Correct. We, the city commission, don't. So that can be done by the, the police chief up until then. Correct. Again, knowing that the purpose of this is that it's a community conversation, that the police chief doesn't change things without the conversation. But, okay, thank you. Um, in that uh, vein, uh, if we did not want to vote on this at this time, would tabling it be more accurate than... Um, than voting against it. Sherry, if we did not want to take action at this time and allow time for staff uh, to work with community members, would tabling it be the most accurate? Wanting to defer the item? Yeah. And that's, I mean, if that's the direction you want to go, you would want to do that by motion. But again, if that would it wouldn't come back for a second reading then until after July 1. We could table it till next week and then do two readings next week, a first and a second reading. Could you do that? Could you? I mean, you have in the past adopted on um, first and second reading. I don't know if Randy's on to perhaps advise yeah, on that. Randy's also on this is uh, Randy Larkin, Deputy City Attorney. Um, we have in the past declared an emergency and done first and second readings at the same time when we've had short time to turn around for like uh, bond initiatives and various things like that. Uh, if, the, if the city commission declared an emergency and wanted to do first and reading, second reading next week, uh, I think that would be all right. Commissioner's discussion. I mean, you know, I think everyone agrees that we want to continue to work on this and make it the least restrictive language we want. I mean, we've asked mm -hmm. and staff has presented us what they think is the least restrictive. Others might disagree. And I think we want to look at that to decide that. But 
um, either this week or next week, I'd prefer to have a law we think is in compliance by July 1st. And if we amended on July 5th, you know, because we found something better, we amended on July 13th or we amended in August, you know, I think we can continue to work on it. Um, but personally, I don't want to have a law go into effect. I mean, I don't want July 1st to come and have an ordinance in place that our staff has said does not comply with state law. I would agree. I mean, like Commissioner Finkel, I said it doesn't preclude us from working on it further. Um, but since July 1st is coming up, I would rather us be in compliance. Now, as Randy said, we can do both the first and second reading if we choose to next week and do that then. But that would be our last chance to do it before July 1st. Unless we can hold a special meeting. Yeah. 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 Well, after reading through this, I, I would agree that it would be great to have more work done on this. But I have to admit, I'm, I'm very um, hesitant about not coming into compliance with the state law in the time required. So um, I would be I would be willing. I mean, I'm more than happy to, to follow some thought with the commission if they so want to, to continue to work on this, to have um, an immigration lawyer look at it if that needs to be um, and um, see what they say about it and whether or not there's some other language we can add that provides the protection that was originally um, um, negotiated. And I was in on those meetings with, with the Sanctuary Alliance folks. Um, so, you know, I would like to, to see if there's some of this language you can't, can't put back in because when I read the policy changes, I'm just like, you know, you're saying you're not going to do this. That means you're, you know, you're striking it out. To me, that just means you've opened it up to actually taking away that protection. Yeah. So. But I would, I would, but I would say that uh, to be clear, I don't think with the, I mean, lots of the questions you ask about as well as yeah. Lacey's good points are in the, in the policy. And, and we would have the same limitation on the policy of two readings and, and so forth. So we can direct you know, staff to continue to work on that mm -hmm. up until July 1st yeah, and do the best that, you know, best they can on July 1st and continue to work after July 1st. But we have more time on that. I think we direct staff not only to continue to work on the ordinance, but also direct staff to continue to work mm -hmm. with Sanctuary Alliance on the, on the, the policy yeah, and, you know, have the best policy in place that they can on, on July 1st. Yeah. And I'm fine with that. Typically I didn't, think we actually voted on policy. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. We don't vote on that. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. So we don't have that limitation. Yeah. Right. Right. So, and I'm fine with that. I want to be clear about the direction we're giving staff is to work with uh, Sanctuary Alliance and the public till the end of the month. Now to the policy to bring us a second because we're we're asking staff to come to work with Sanctuary, Sanctuary Alliance. I'm sorry, not enough coffee. We're asking staff to work with Sanctuary Alliance to bring back something for us to do on a first or second, to declare an emergency next week and approve this ordinance on first and second reading. So we're giving them a week timeline to bring us back something other than what they've provided us this evening.
or if, you know, if we needed to call an emergency meeting just for this, you know, I would rather get it done next week. Okay. All, all possible. Um, well, again, I, if I have an emergency meeting and make it worth my while, I'm going to add some more stuff to the agenda. <laughs> well, I guess I want to make it clear that would that the direction would not necessarily, I mean, to the extent Sanctuary Alliance or others, you know, it, we might make recommendations by next week, but it might take us a month. It might take us two months. I, I don't want to limit the direction to say, do the best you can in a month and then forget it. I think yeah. we want the direction no. to be that they work on the ordinance, they work with the police, and, you know, the, everyone works together to, to be in compliance with state law in the best way we can. Um, that we all have the same goal in mind. And if that, you know, if, if that brings us something back before July 1, great. If it's on July 5th, great. If it's on July 13th, great. If it's yeah. September, it's great. I mean, That's fine. Um, but the sooner the better. Can you say something that's an organization that can ask you to circle? Sure. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, first, can we just say the actual consequences that are outlined in HB 2717 is that if we are not compliant, we will be put in a review to be compliant. So we are preemptively doing the work of the attorney general by doing this. So that that is our issue here about this this not January July first deadline is if we are found to be in noncompliance, which means they have to bring it to us and say we are noncompliant, then they have to do a review. Other than that, there are no other penalties at this time. There's no fines. There's no legal action that is outlined in that bill. So we are being reactionary by doing this and striking language before we have an opportunity to get a review and asking us to get a review in a week by a legal expert to look at the state bill, our current ordinance, police policy, and the revisions is an impossible ask. We are volunteers. We are unpaid here because this affects our community. This literally affects me and my family. That That's a, a pretty big ask from the commission rather than saying, let's see, let's do some good work on this. See what we need to revise, if anything. And if we fall out of compliance, the attorney general can then do what they need to do and call us to be in compliance. That is the accountability measure that the state has put in. So I, I'm just confused as to why we are in such a rush when the consequence is a review of the ordinance in the first place? Uh, I can respond to my thought, which is our oath of office says we're going to follow the state federal laws. And if we know, if we know, if we have our attorneys telling us we have a law that violates the state, and maybe your position is, is that there's nothing in this ordinance that violates the state law. Maybe that's your position, that not one word needs to be changed. But we're being told the law violates state law. So my concern is that I can't knowingly, you know, have a law that violates. I mean, you know, we can't have something on the books that violates state law. And we're so saying we're try to accomplish that. we are working towards that. But to rush this process so and it, just strike language. 
Is it your, I mean, is it your legal, do you have a legal opinion besides to contradict our attorney's legal opinion? Yes, we've been working on this and have, and have the legal expertise and the lived experience to, to tell you this. And we are also offering to provide an, an attorney to look at this. You are not providing that. We are. So can we please have the time to actually get somebody to review this and give them the space of more than a week because we are being reactionary to a state law? So Maria, what would that time, what would that time be? Because one, neither was I suggesting that a week would be adequate. What I was suggesting is a week is because if we're talking about providing an emergency action, that only gives us a week if we're trying to be in compliance by July 1. So I just wanted to make sure that was understood that that was I saying that it needs to be a week. It was if we're wanting this to be done by July 1 and we were wanting to do, if we were wanting to call an emergency and vote on this by first and second reading it, that only, that would only give us a week, which does hamstring us. With that being said, since it does sound like that you've done some of the, you've, you've, done the research, you've been in consult, and now it's just a matter of bringing the two together. If that was to happen, and this would come back before the commission, how much time are you saying you need in order for this to happen? I would at least like a month to look through this, to work with city staff. It took us over a year to get this ordinance done. It's only been 114 days since this bill was proposed at the state legislature and it was pushed through in an unjust way. You know, I mean, and those are things that we're, we're not placing blame on city staff or, or anybody other than state legislator, but we do need the time to do this in a way that will be effective and, and not take away questionable pr- provisions. We've already put a lot of what has been stricken in the police policy that's violating the city ordinance. So there, there are already inconsistencies in what is stricken here. And I think we, we just are asking for a thorough review of this. And if July 1 rolls around and we're not ready, I'm asking the city of Lawrence to maybe take that risk and be non-compliant until we can do this right. And if the consequence right now is that the attorney general may ask to review the ordinance and we're already working to modify that ordinance, then on a personal level, I'm willing to take a risk like that. That doesn't sound like it's harming anyone. And, And to speak to the target on our back, immigrants have targets on their back every day. It's, it's a risk. We're willing to take. Again, I want to be clear about the direction we're giving staff right now. Ask staff one question, please. Zach, could you comment on that discussion back and forth here, especially the part about you know, what the state attorney general has indicated is that it would go into a review process, and that's only after they've found that it's in noncompliance. Could you talk about that a little bit? 
So I'll direct you to the bill. It's easiest to go with plain language of the bill. This is in section six of House Bill 2717. The attorney general or county or district attorney may bring an action to compel compliance with sections two through five. That's the relevant portions we've been talking about and amendments there too. If a court finds that a municipality or any other person or entity has violated, is violating or is about to violate any provision of this act, the court shall enjoin the municipality, person or entity to comply with the act. So the attorney general can uh, bring an action to compel compliance. The court determines if we're in if the municipality person or entity is in violation and then compels compliance. And compelling compliance could mean based on the until the court deems that our ordinances suffice with in adhering to state statute. Correct. Is this a situation where if this if we were to pass this, that we could continue to look at the ordinance and make changes to it going forward? If, you know, do the research on it from, from an immigration attorney standpoint um, and then make those changes that we deem are appropriate in order to make sure we stay in compliance. Absolutely. And that's that's our stance is that we want to get the basics, the minimum to get in compliance. And we're always willing to work with other interested parties um, to make any changes to the ordinance in the future. So you would be willing to work with the immigration attorney that was, they were talking about, Sanctuary Alliance was talking about earlier? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. At, at the commission's direction, we'll work with anybody. To me, this is just a matter of do we want this done before July 1st or are we want to, willing to take the chance and wait till afterwards and give staff and Sanctuary Alliance the time to do it? There, we don't, there is no stop time unless reviewing ordinance. Ordinances are reviewed at any time. That's why we have the ability to do that. If we, we can bring it as commissioners, staff can bring it, commissions can bring it, boards can, can bring it, the community can bring it. The question at hand tonight is, are we wanting to put something in play before July 1st? Or are we willing to, to give staff in the community time to review this and have them come, have it come back to us at another time? No. So can we all agree to some kind of timeline so that we can give these parties time to speak to each other? I would say July 5th. Is that uh, will of commission? I mean, is that what folks are? I think is we're discussing it. So yeah. it's either next week or July 5th or July 12th, August 18th. It'd be three weeks. I would be fine with that. What does the calendar look like? I just will go on the record saying maximum amount of time that I can convince my other commissioners to give them. It um, understanding that we're also talking about our legal counsel, um, communicating with other legal counsel, um, which in theory may be pro bono. We're not sure about that. Um, and that time 
may not go as swiftly um, as Ms. Ferrero has indicated, um, especially with uh, work being done for free. So commissioners, how much time can I get out of you? Okay. I would be, I, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, with Vice Mayor Larson mentioning a special meeting on the 28th, that what is what I can move to. But I'm just really, I would really rather us get in compliance before July 1st. Commissioner Finkler. I mean, I, I, I agree. I, I want to be in as best of you know, compliance in the least restrictive way possible by July 1st, and then continue to work on it to make it the best we can thereafter. And I agree, three weeks is not very long, two weeks is very not very long, and one week is certainly not very long to make the best bill possible. No matter what we do, I hope the work doesn't stop whenever we do it, because I think there's more work to be done. So I hear consensus. Staff, are you understanding our direction? Um, I don't, you just, uh, <laughs> do we need a motion to I, defer? I well, we can either table, or I guess we can defer. Did, did we have consensus? Um, I didn't think we because I heard July first, and I heard July fifth. So I'm. I just want to make sure I heard it right. Well, if my only options are those, I will always go for the, the most amount of time, July 5th. I never heard July 1st. I said July 5th, and I think somebody said someone said July, uh, July uh, June Yeah, 8th I said, I said about, about a special what? meeting. So we're giving staff a whole lot here, either having a special meeting and we're coming back on the 28th to vote on this, or we're deferring, we're deferring this to a special meeting on the 28th, or we're deferring this to the July 5th meeting. I'm ready to make a motion for July 5th. So if someone wants to cut me off, better speak. So I said the tw July, June 28th, but I could do July 1st. I just want us to be in compliance. So well, we're having a special meeting on July 1st. Well, I mean, it's it doesn't matter to me any time before then. So it could be the 28th, which would probably be more amenable to people, based getting considering the 4th of July is a holiday. So... <clears throat> But as, as I'm thinking about it, I, I do agree with Finkeldie that the idea that we're going to push this through in a couple of weeks, if everybody wants to do it before July 1st, or if that's the, the idea, um, how good of a product are we going to have? So I, I do, I am concerned at thinking about it a little bit more about whether or not the product is, is going to be better. Um, there's going to be plenty of time to really digest it. Well, maybe by way of compromise, let's say if we wanted to get extra time, let's say through July to August, just a reminder that the way it is written, we cannot violate federal or state law. And in the course of a month, um, the idea that we would violate state or federal law is un unlikely to me. It is written that we cannot violate state or federal law, is it not? So um, a little time for discussion. One month isn't the hardest ask I've made. Well, obviously, the intention of the work is there. 
So okay. I'm, I'm, I'm someone trying to put a motion together that staff will come back on July 12th and they will work with Sanctuary Alliance to review the recommended amendments to chapter one, article 10 section. I, I mean, I'm, yeah. What are, what are we? Yeah. I can't make the motion because I don't know what the motion is. Yeah. Again, as I continue to think about this and process it out loud, unfortunately, um, for, for, for you all, um, I do have concerns about missing that July 1st deadline and the idea that if we can, um, go ahead and get something done that our legal staff can support, but continue to work on the document and give a deadline as to when that needs to come back at that point. I don't think anyone's saying that we can't continue to work on it. Mm -hmm. and, and, I, and I hope that's not being insinuated because it's, it's not by me. So it doesn't make a difference if we make a decision on this tonight, tomorrow, the 28th, the 5th. Whatever we vote on, we're just voting on. We can, can, there can, someone can come back the following week and bring it back to the commission for us to review it. And it's up to the commission to vote whether or not we want to continue to review it. So I don't, that's not on the table tonight. What's on the table is when do we want this to come back in front of us to vote on it? Is it tonight? Is it the 21st? Is it the 28th as a special meeting? Is it the 5th? So all the things about July 1, that, that's moot as it relates to whether or not, when do we want this to come back in front of us and give direct staff enough time to do what it is that they need to do to, speak, to work with community partners to bring back something. Zach has one last comment, and then I hope one of us has a motion. Uh, Commissioner, I just, or Mayor, I just wanted to note that your comment of violating law between July 1 and, and whatever the bill passes with the ordinance uh, in city code right now on July 1, that would be a violation of House Bill 2717, the way it's written right now. Thank you, Zach. I'm entertaining motions. I move that we defer adopting ordinance number 9920 to July 5th and direct staff to work with community partners to review with an immigration lawyer to review the language of chapter one, article 10 sections 1-1003 and 1-1004 of the code of the city of Lawrence 2018 edition and amendments there too, and to bring those recommendations back to us at that time. Second. I have a first and a second. All those in favor? Aye. Aye. That, that, all those opposed? Aye. 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 That does not pass. Um, I'm entertaining another motion. I move that we defer adopting on adopting ordinance number 9920 to a special meeting on June 28th, and we direct staff to work with community partners and an immigration lawyer to review the amended 
to review chapter one, article 10, section 1-1003 and 1-1004 of the Code of the City of Lawrence into 2018 edition and to bring those recommendations back to us for vote, for consideration, sorry. I have a first. Second. The first and a second, all those in favor? Aye. 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 All those opposed? Aye. That passes forward to one. Okay. All right. Uh, we are still on consent, I believe. <laughs> yep. Uh, this was pulled by Chris Flowers. Hi, um, this is Chris Flowers, and I pulled um, the one about the 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 SUP for the Dare Center because I think um, the city should be giving the Dare Center um, ten years instead of five years for the the time the SUP is good for. And I say this because last fall there was a business that serves wine and is classified as a bar and lounge, and the city staff recommended it get ten years for its SUP and you all were going to um, vote for it in the consent agenda. None of you all uh, pulled it from consent. So that means you all were ready to vote yes for it. But the only some some citizen pulled it and in the end it got six years instead. And six years is still more than um, five. And my problem is that <laughs> It just seems crazy that a nonprofit that's that exists solely for the purpose of helping the community, that they're the ones the city's going to hold the higher standards to, like they're the ones more likely to, to mess up the neighborhood than a, a business that's just exists just to make money. Um, so. Let's see. Um, and also, I mean, it's do the Dare Center. It's doing work that the city refuses to spend money on. I mean, it's it's helping us. And I, I don't. I just don't understand. Because when it first came up for its SUP, there were citizens complaining that oh, it's going to be a center for drunkenness. Yet a, a business classified as a bar and lounge. The staff recommends it gets 10 years. I mean, really, who, which business is more likely to be a center for drunkenness, the one serving alcohol or the one that's not serving alcohol? So and and here's the thing. Next this next summer, some of y'all might be campaigning again. And I don't know if I'm going to run again, but if I do. And if 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 any of y'all vote for five years instead of 10, I will be um, bringing that up because my understanding is that people kind of care about homelessness as an issue around here. I mean, last last summer it did. And if you're going to be on like at a forum saying, you know, that you support homeless and all that, I'll, I'll be bringing up then why did you only give five years instead of 10 years when you're willing to give like a business classified as a bar and, or, and a lounge at 
uh, tenures. And I'm pretty sure Dare would like it because they requested it from the planning commission that they get tenures because it, it, it costs more money because instead if you do it five years, then they're spending twice as much in the span of 10 years on uh, costs to the city. Thank you. Thank you. Um, commissioners? Questions or questions for staff? I have a question for staff. Um, Luke, was was the code say on the length of the SUP and 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 did and what was the application? Was the application for 10 years? Good evening, Commissioners. Luke Mortensen, Planner of Planning Development Services. Um, the applicant did ask for 10 years. Um, the code allows staff to make a time a length recommendation and the commissioners to you know agree or disagree with that. Um, the code allows for no time limit to be on a special use permit. Staff landed uh, on five years um, and had notified the applicant of this for two main reasons. The first being because of the pandemic and because um, in-person meetings were difficult, some of the original conditions on the original special use permit were not met during the first three years. And so staff wanted to see that those conditions be met in a, in a provisional period before considering a longer time period or no time period. The second, um, item of consideration was for our temporary shelter use, the code has a standard where every five years, the management plan is reviewed by staff and the city commission. And so we thought that because that had a five-year component as well, it aligned nicely um, for this um, for this um, renewal of the DARE Center special use permit. Uh, in five years, when this is up, um, I think staff would be, again, ready and willing to consider making a recommendation on a 10-year um, time period or whatever the applicant may be interested in that time. Mayor, can I just point out, since this item was pulled, there is a note in the item that you commissioners will need to disclose ex parte communications. Oh, yes. Thank you very much. Um, I have no ex parte communications. Any other commissioners? Uh, no ex parte communications. I have none. No, I have none. I have none. Thank you, Sherry. Uh, commissioners, any further questions for staff? Uh, this is now open for public comment. Is there anyone in the room who has public comment on this item? Uh, Mayor, I'd like to mention that it uh, it is a big matter for all of us as inclusivity. Let's bring us all together. And they, the homeless is a part of that inclusivity. It's wrong to take it away from us. I am one of those. I hate to say that because it's it's a harsh thing to have. But it is true. And there are us out there, and we vote, I vote you guys into office. I deserve the right to have you consider my needs, and those are my needs. They meet my needs. They've helped me many times. I have currently lost my place because of the floods. They have helped me get back. You take that away from me, I'm homeless, even worse. I don't have a tent to stay in. Thank you. 
Thank you. Any other public comment in the room? Is there any public comment online on Zoom on this item? I do not see any public comment on Zoom there. All right, great. Let's bring it back to the commission. Any discussion or motions? Given the comments by staff as the reasoning for the five years, I can, I, I'm fine with that. So I'll make a motion, I guess. No more comments. I move to approve a special use permit SUP 2200055 to renew the previously approved special use permit for a temporary shelter use DARE Center located at 944 Kentucky Street based on the findings presented and subject to the conditions listed in the staff report adopt on first reading ordinance number 9917. I have a first, is there a second? I second. I have a first and second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 Any opposed? That passes five to zero. Uh, that brings us to general public comment. The public is allowed to speak on items and issues that are not scheduled for discussion on the agenda. As a general practice, the commission will not discuss or debate these items, nor will the commission make decisions or on items presented during this time. Individuals should address all comments and questions to the commission. Each person will be limited to three minutes. Do we have any public comment? My name is Dr. Justin Spies and I'm running as a Republican for Douglas County Commissioner in District 1 and the seat is currently held by Democrat Patrick Kelly. Patrick Kelly is a USD 497 school district administrator and he makes $122,813 a year and that is an increase from his 2020 salary of $109,938. The school district continues to be in a massive budget crisis right now that has led to an increase in teacher and staff resignations. At last night's school board meeting, the board declined to go any higher than their most recent proposed teacher salary raise of raise of 1.8%. I wonder if Patrick Kelly's astronomical salary has anything to do with that. Pry. Another current Douglas County Commissioner, Dr. Shannon Portillo, just announced she's leaving her elected seat on the commission less than 18 months into her four-year term for a more prestigious job in acad academia. Shannon doesn't have kids, but sat up on her almighty throne and dictated to all parents in Douglas County to mass their kids at all times, starting at two years old. She played politics with our lives to advance her career in academia. All these liberal Dems are the same. Again, my name is Dr. Justin Spies, and if you want to learn more about me and what I stand for and why I stand for it, then I encourage you to check out the Kansas Constitutional online newsletter founded and written by Ian Brannon. He did a fair and truthful article, you know, what used to be known as journalism, about me last week. Also, if you can, support his work with a paid subscription. I stand on the corner of Six and Castle most afternoons campaigning with my sign. When I'm out there, I hear a lot. Uh, I hear from a lot of people in town. The other day, a local business owner told me he can barely keep up his keep up uh, keep his business open due to the $30,000 in annual property taxes he has to pay and how he has to explain to his customers why his service has gone from $40 to $70 in order to keep his business open and pay these uh, taxes. I think, I think about that a lot. I suspect that the tax money collected goes straight to ineffective, inefficient, and wasteful local social, social justice programs that don't accomplish what they intend. Why are these local social justice programs ineffective, inefficient, and wasteful? Well, it's because the people who implement these policies, policies these leaders here and those on the county commission, are only doing it to generate money to support an entire local industry of people, bureaucrats, 
virtue signalers, social justice warriors, commies, all their friends who run the local social justice programs. It makes them feel good at the expense of the taxpayer who can barely keep his business afloat because of astronomical taxes. <clears throat> The Douglas County Libertarian Party endorsed Liberal Democrat Shannon Portillo during her 2020 campaign and still do today. So does Steve Jacob, who's currently running for Douglas County Commissioner as a Libertarian candidate. He gives his full support to her on Twitter. Steve Jacob supports a Liberal Democrat politician who takes money from hardworking Douglas County residents and gives it to wasteful social justice programs. Steve Jacob supports a local Democrat who voted repeatedly to take your parental rights away by mandating that your child as young as two years old has to wear a mask. Don't make no sense to me. Steve Jacob and the Libertarian party around here do you even know what it means to be libertarian just like most rhinos around here all uh, you all are just liberals in disguise and more than likely are com communists in disguise don't forget to vote yes on august 2nd to keep baby murder illegal because well it's baby murder and therefore it's wrong don't get any simpler than that is there any further public comment michael again lawrence accountability <laughs> You guys are talking about the Sanctuary Alliance issues just a little bit ago. I want to point out something, how bad we need the Community Police Review Board. I made four demands, body cams recording, Community Police Review Board, citizens able to inquire about complaints that they know about. If you're going to give that much discretion to officers, why don't you give it to the AG? said the AG may, and the reality is, is this is really no different than a CORA situation, which this city would willfully just flagrantly violate all day long because all that'll happen is just an enforcement action. That's all that's gonna happen here. So I don't understand the rush. We could literally drag this out for a couple months because it's going to take the AG a while to file that enforcement action. And by then you guys could come in and codify a policy and move forward and everybody's happy because that's what would happen. I find it offensive that a city attorney would come up here and can't answer a simple question. Can you be charged criminally for a civil violation? How difficult is that, Brad? You're an attorney. That's not a tough question. But he obfuscates about it because he doesn't want to answer that because he wants the target on your back so that you'll act the way he wants you to. That's wrong. That was literally a city staff member up here coercing you guys. <laughs> Does it run that thickly through the city that the staff coerces you, the police coerce us, everybody's coercing everybody, so we just go along to get along? So far in my experiences in this town, there's been one person that has handled a complaint properly, promptly, correctly, and without any favoritism. And he's sitting right in front of you. I had a pretty severe issue at the beginning of the CPRB meeting last, last week with Dave over here. Porter handled that. Dave's not famous because of Porter. I don't put these videos out to make money. I don't put these videos out to embarrass people. I put these videos out to call you out. And if I need to call you out, I'll call you out. I'm going to be submitting a core request for some of this man's communications because the way he's putting you guys in a position with a target on your back when all it is is compliance 
It's literally nothing more than a core, guys. Pay attention to what they're doing. Have a good night. Is there any further public comment in the room? Hi, I'm Chris Flowers. Um, I just wanted to, to mention about the, the whole community police review board stuff that's going on. Um, you all are letting the police have too much involvement in that. And I just think you all should be thinking at this point is how, how can we get the police to go along with what we want? Um, and when I say that, I mean, like, what can you offer the police that they'll be willing to wear body cams like 24 seven and be actually willing to have that footage be reviewed by an independent board and not just themselves. And I mean, I, I don't, I, you keep including the police in the process, but they're the ones that are going to be um, hindering the process. So I just think you should not be including them, but then be figuring out hey, how are you going to appease them to get them to go along with what we want? Like maybe not drug testing them. Like, can you let them like, smoke or chew tobacco while on the clock. I mean, think of like outside the box stuff that police might like. And then also I'm, I want to mention, um, I saw on a community scanner that some woman was called like someone called the, the police or called, I guess, dispatch to report a woman topless walking her dog. And, um, I think it's back in 2000, I guess 2020, I guess it's been a couple of years ago, I went to Human Relations Commission with a couple of ordinances, and one of them was the topless ordinance, and then that was right before the city gate stuff, and I guess it was put off, you know, like, let's let's put it on hold till city gate looks at it and city gate never looked at it. So I was just thinking maybe it's time to, to start looking at those ordinances that got put on hold with the whole city gate thing. Cause I think it's kind of ridiculous that, that we're going to consider women topless to be obscene. It's just a human body. Thank you. Is there any further public comment in the room? Uh, let's see if there's any public comment online on Zoom. There's no public comment. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> <let's>, <laughs> we have actually been at this since five o'clock. I want to make sure my fellow commissioners don't want to break. I'm not seeing any heads. Good. Let's carry on with the work session. Our first item, sorry, the work session provides an opportunity for the city commission to discuss items in greater detail. The commission will take no binding action on items presented during this time. Work session topics are eligible for live public comment. Each person will be limited to three minutes. Um, our first item is to receive strategic plan update from the connected city outcome team. Uh, good evening, mayor and commissioners. Can everyone hear me okay? Uh, this is Trevor Flynn. I'm the Assistant Director for Municipal Services and Operations Department, and I'll be providing the update tonight. Uh, Porter, I will begin to share my screen. Go ahead. Okay, is everyone seeing that? Yes. Okay, great. Um, so this is our first update since uh, Melinda and um, Angela provided the initial Connected City a presentation. So I'll 
kind of just skip through our outcome uh, statement as well as uh, what I'm focusing on tonight is our performance indicators. This is our 14 indicators for the Connected City outcome team. And tonight I'm focusing on the months per year the city is in compliance with minimum wastewater and water discharge standards and the percent of goals met for liability of water and wastewater, which is our CC3 and CC4 um, indicators. First, I'll start with an overview of our drinking water system. We have two plants with two different sources of water. This is a tremendous benefit to our community. Our COV uh, treatment plant was originally built in 1916 and it was expanded in 1954. It averages 14 million gallons per day of production, and it has a capacity of 16 million gallons a, a, a day. Um, the source water uh, is the Kansas River and six alluvial uh, wells adjacent to the river. Uh, this plant recently won a Best Tasting Water Award in Kansas in 2019. Our second plant, which is our newest plant, is 40 years old. This is the Clinton Water Treatment Plant. It was built in conjunction with the Clinton Reservoir. Clinton reached multi-purpose level in 1980. Plant went out online in 1982, and this plant averages 6.3 million gallons per day of production with a 25 MGD capacity. Uh, by this name, source water is Clinton Lake. Um, the city also has uh, 10.3 million gallons a day of storage. Uh, most of the storage is captured in our six uh, tower locations, um, which includes the Harper Tower, 19th and Castle Tower. Uh, there's the twin towers at Oriad, which is the North and South Tower as well as the West 6th Street near Castle Tower, Stratford Tower, and Stone Ridge Tower. Both plants also have additional storage uh, at the plants uh, in, in uh, reservoirs and clear wells. The distribution system includes 343 miles of water distribution lines, 117 miles of water transmission mains, and 34,000 water meters, uh, and, and 3,600-plus uh, fire hydrants. On the wastewater side, um, it's regulated through our National Pollutant Discharge Elimination Permits. Um, in addition, uh, so the city has seven permits that are, and these are permitted discharge. We have our Kansas River Wastewater Treatment Plant, uh, which is permitted discharge of the Kansas River. We have our Wakarusa Wastewater Plant, which is permitted discharge of the Wakarusa River. Um, Clinton uh, Water Treatment and the Kaw Water Treatment both have uh, discharge permits with Clinton discharge into Yankee Tank Creek and the Kaw to the Kansas River. Um, Eagle Bend also holds a MPDS permit for a non-discharging lagoon. Um, we also have our city permit for our city stormwater. That's our municipal separate storm sewer system MS4 permit for wet weather. We are responsible for our water quality within our jurisdiction and what leaves it. Uh, the final permit uh, the city holds is the farmland uh, permit, which has a permit to discharge uh, to the Kansas River as well. On the wastewater side, our collection system includes 465 miles of wastewater mains. We have 34 lift stations that can store, uh, we can store 15 million gallons per day at the plants with storm basins, as well as one of our pump stations. Um, the Kansas River Wastewater Treatment Plant averages about 8 million gallons per day on average for treatment, um, but we do have a peak uh, design flow of 65 million gallons per day. Uh, the Wakarusa plant uh, averages about 2 million gallons per day for treatment, and it has a peak design flow of uh, 5 million gallons per day. If you notice is those, those averages for uh, water treatment produced and distributed and those averages for wastewater treatment um, are very similar on, on, the, on, the, on the average. Very important part um, evaluating our compliance and data is our laboratory services. 
The data is critical to ensuring we are meeting compliance with our permits and to meet our operational reliability goals for water and wastewater. The city has a full service accredited laboratory to analyze water quality samples for compliance of drinking water and treated wastewater. Our water quality laboratory staff additionally collects many of the samples they analyze. In 2021, there was almost 7,000 samples collected with close to 14,000 analysis performed in the laboratory. The cost to run these samples at a private lab if we didn't uh, perform this in-house would approach $600,000, and that would not include the, the hours of sample collection. The city employs uh, five full-time water quality lab technicians to perform these critical functions. The city utilizes industrial automation systems and instrumentation to collect and monitor lots of data in real time within the conveyance and treatment systems. We currently capture 120,000 input output data points from our system, and then we historize approximately 7,000 individual data points for the water treatment side and about 7,500 data points on the wastewater side. These automation data points include flow, pressure, water levels, valve positions, instrumentation readings, and alarm and status inputs. All the historized data is recorded and organized in real time and historic trends. We also utilize this data to process uh, calculations uh, for operations, regulatory reporting, and inventory tracking. This brings us to, uh, after that background, brings us to CC3, so our months per year uh, that we're in compliance with our water and wastewater discharge standards. All this compliance data uh, collected and analyzed by lab as a regulatory requirement, either through drinking water regulations or through the permits on our wastewater plants is the basis for the performance of this indicator. Start with the water side. The uh, data evaluated is associated with the Safe Drinking Water Act and drinking water uh, regulations. The city looks at many parameters to assess compliance, um, including 100 samples per month for coliform, we sample for atrazine, we do uh, fluoride, full pesticide scans, uh, inorganics, full scans there, lead and copper, nitrate, and then full scans of, of volatile organics. The city generally samples much more frequently than required to assess water quality, reliability, and performance, including daily testing for taste and odor and toxin testing related algae blooms. The consumer confidence report details what detection the city detected in the system tap and if there were any violations. There were no drinking water violations in 2021. The consumer confidence report is sent annually in the utility bill to our customers. It provides a brief summary of our sources of our drinking water, a description of the treatment and water contaminant sources, taste and odor, common attributes, and it lists the table of the water quality data and lists all the drinking water contaminants which were detected the previous calendar year. Uh, the presence of any of these does not indicate uh, they necessarily pose a health risk. On the wastewater side, compliance with uh, wastewater is determined by our, our MPDS permits that I mentioned previously through the Clean Water Act. As, as I mentioned, the city has seven permits, but five of those have monitoring permit requirements, and four of these contain permit limits. Our two wastewater treatment plants have the majority of the permit requirements. There's 21 parameters identified in each of the wastewater treatment plants permits that have monitoring requirements or permit limits. If we miss any one of these, the plant could be out of compliance for the entire month. We achieved compliance in 11 out of 12 months in both 2019 and 2020, improving all 12 months in 2021. 2019 was an ammonia violation at the Wakarusa due to an upset after a complete power loss due to the tornado that wiped out both power feeds to the plant. In 2020, it was an E. coli bacteria violation due to wet weather uh, running excess flow. 
Key permit limits that impact us are associated with nutrients, total phosphorus and total nitrogen. Permit limits are derived from water quality standards and impairments on the receiving stream. Wakarusa plant is a new plant and was issued stringent permit limits based on the latest treatment technologies to ensure there's no degradation of the Wakarusa River. The new permit for the Kansas River wastewater treatment plant has permit limits for nutrients similar to the Wakarusa plant. The Kansas River wastewater treatment plant has to reduce nutrients to the effluent flows to the Kansas River. The plant currently discharges about 380 pounds per day of total phosphorus. The facility must reduce to an assigned permitted allocation of 104 pounds per day of total phosphorus by the end of this current permit cycle, which ends in 2024. The current treatment process of the Kansas River wastewater treatment uh, plant requires a major plant upgrade to meet these new permit limits. Effluent nutrient reductions are not just applicable to us, but other municipalities that discharge the Kansas River are additionally spending hundreds of millions of dollars in infrastructure collectively to meet their assigned nutrient permit limits. The city has been aware that these limits be incorporated into our permit. We've been planning for several years to get ahead of this with the major upgrade project being part of our recent CIP. Uh, the current permit details an aggressive and unattainable construction schedule in today's market. The city has been in discussions with KDHE to negotiate a reasonable time frame to complete this challenging project. This construction will take place while the, the plant remains in operation. The project is scheduled to be completed in about 2025, and more information on this project uh, will be provided to the commission in the coming weeks. I believe uh, Leah has a presentation um, to some degree next week on that. So strategies uh, for our, our CC3 is, is asset management for treatment operations, plants, lift stations, towers, convenience, and distributions. The plants must perform as designed in order to meet compliance. Another key strategy is to follow the implementation schedule for our infrastructure improvement identified in the city's integrated plan to achieve clean water and human health goals by addressing aging infrastructure, climate change, and competing priorities for funding. The framework for integrated plan was designed by EPA to help municipalities select affordable approaches for sequencing clean water infrastructure investment needs while achieving water quality goals. These plans benefit water quality and provide cost saving opportunities beyond what a singular improvement project could achieve. We know what we, we need to do in regards to improvements or new regulatory mandates. The integrated plan is a tool we use to tell the regulators how we are going to get there while balancing priorities and affordability. This puts us in control of sequencing our projects and is better for our, our, our rate payers. The city's integrated plan documents a mutual understanding between the city and the Kansas Department of Health and Environment regarding the imp implementation schedule for infrastructure improvements, enhancements, and expansion. The integrated plan currently incorporates the wastewater stormwater permits for the city's two wastewater treatment plants and our MS4 stormwater permit. Significant updates to the plan are anticipated once a farmland project has a clear path and coordination with updates associated with what we learned from the Southwest Conveyance Corridor Study and Modeling Project, which will identify improvement needs as we grow west. The more we grow west, the further we, we have to get our wastewater to the east side of town. Asset management and integrated plan together will help us evaluate what we must do, want to do, and where we'd like to be, as Darren mentioned in one of his recent, uh, when, he, when he discussed asset, asset management a few weeks ago. On CC4, our goals are associated with water main leaks, water service disruptions per thousand accounts, water loss, um, wastewater collection service disruptions, sanitary sewer overflows, and hydrant, hydrant flow. Unplanned disruption of water treatment process that reduces capacity, a portion of our completion of our water treatment preventative maintenance, 
percent of water quality targets met by water treatment, percent of water quality targets met by wastewater treatment, unplanned disruption of wastewater treatment, and the number of wet weather events and incidences. These all help us evaluate our reliability. There's lots of data and work behind each of these goals. As an example, goals for the percent of water quality targets met by water treatment for reliability are set based on operational or lab data that is used to evaluate targets or key performance indicators used for the treatment and delivery of high quality drinking water to our community. There are 14 critical parameters that we track for water treatment reliability with over 140,000 data points read each year to assess our treatment performance. Both, our, both plants, our Colin Clinton water treatment plant, are both meeting goals for 92%. We also track the unplanned disruptions, which include power losses, equipment failures, emergency repairs, the taste and odor events, and the daily flows above process to design to assess the reliability of our capacity. Despite aging infrastructure, the city continues to excel with critical functions associated with water and wastewater treatment as demonstrated with achievement of National Peak Performance Awards for a National Association membership with the National Association of Clean Water Agencies. Addressing aging infrastructure to meet reliability and regulatory expectations, all while being subject to new regulatory mandates, like new permit requirements or the new lead and copper rule, will be challenging, expensive, and require thoughtful planning to develop successful strategies moving forward. As part of our environmental sustainability commitment, we consider the environmental consequences and impact of our decisions. As a water and wastewater utility, we are in the sustainability business. We must treat and deliver safe drinking water while maintaining capacity to accommodate future growth and protect our sources of water for future generations. We understand the importance of improving water quality and the importance to treat wastewater to minimize our community's footprint in the Kansas and Wakarusa rivers. Achieving high levels of treatment requires energy. Our treatment plants are the largest consumers of energy of any of our city facilities. They run, they run 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, with Kansas River Wastewater Treatment Plan being the largest consumer, which has a budget of over $800,000 for electricity uh, per year. How can our sustainability dollars make the biggest impact on these facilities while recognizing the bigger picture of how these facilities' performance is related to our ability to reduce our impact on our water resources? Our treatment plants are an important driver for our commitment to efficient and effective processes. Our continuous effort to improve our sources of water is also related to our desire to reduce chemical costs. Dollars spent in the watershed can improve water quality and reduce our utilization on expensive chemicals. We must constantly deliver reliable services at all times. Common challenges are associated with climate, wet weather events, and drought. For example, our wastewater plants should only be treated in wastewater, which is generally predicted by how much water we deliver. However, as an example, during a recent wet weather event at the end of May, we distributed less than 8 million gallons per day of treated water, but we ended up treating a peak of 52 billion gallons of, of wastewater that day. This tells what, us we are expending peak amounts of energy and chemicals to treat stormwater that has infiltrated our sanitary sewer system through inflow and infiltration, or INI, which has a tremendous financial and staffing impact as we address these events caused by storm events in INI. Additionally, leveraging all projects that benefit each other will be critical to efficient operations while maximizing our financial resources. For example, Farmland has project components that will benefit both upgrades to the Kansas River Wastewater Treatment Plant and the MSO field campus uh, through nitrogen removal at the plant and, and, and capping with the field campus. Our commitment to sound fiscal stewardship is imperative to managing the complexities of our treatment operations and conveyance systems, particularly as we remind ourselves 
the age of our plants with the cow plant being over 100 years old. As we make upgrades, we will be faced with tough decisions on value and life cycle costs, and the rate of return on investments. Um, with that, the opportunity for specific discussions or questions will be, there'll be plenty of opportunity for presentations that are coming up in the future on the Kansas River Wastewater Treatment Plant Upgrade, farmland, and other CIP projects related to water and wastewater. Um, so it's a little bit of a, a this is the conclusion of, of presentation, but we're at a dot, dot, dot for discussion. So we're happy to discuss uh, anything, um, but at the same time, there's going to be several opportunities as some of these more targeted uh, project discussions um, are presented your way soon. Thank you so much. Um, let's make sure there's no questions from the commissioners. Trevor, the question, did you say in that wet, wet weather event at the end of May, we had $8 million, 8 million gallons of, of water produced, but we treated 52 million? Was that the number you said? Yes, that was the peak. That was that's correct. That's that was the peak for the day. The average flow uh, for that day was over thirty million gallons per day being treated, and, and that's not uncommon when we are saturated and get heavy rainfall. Well, that was going to be my question. I know we we've been spending some money, been working a little bit on stormwater, and I know we have a lot in the CIP about that. How does that that event compare to event? You know, I mean. I, how does that compare to some older events and or are we making progress? Is that down or is that about average or if you see what I'm asking? Yes. Um, I, this Trevor Flynn, assistant director with MSO, we, we, when we have really bad events, a lot of times we'll do investigations and we look at the sewer shed. We're looking for the manholes if any weren't secure. Um, but the more uh, that we've sealed those manholes, we have seen um, progress with those. We had an event a couple years ago with our pump station nine, which is out by the um, southwest part of town where we were finding turtles and fish. And so we knew there's there's issues. And so that's where a lot of that, that follow up does. So uh, I think we are making progress, but but when we are working on the system as well, there's there's always opportunities for improvement. And then how does the when you have an event like that, 52 million, does is that what you meant when you were talking earlier about the uh, wet weather events affecting our compliance with wastewater? That something like that, obviously, it's hard to treat that in the in the same way given the right. volume. Right. So the plant could peak peak flow permitted at sixty five million gallons per day, and we have gone over that in the past. Um, during I want to say in two thousand nineteen, we did, and that causes the system to surcharge, and that that's where we get uh, wastewater exiting. Uh, manholes or they're finding the path of least resistance or we get backups in the system. Thank you. Any other questions? It doesn't look like it. Okay, let's uh, make sure there's no public comment on this item. Is there any public comment in the room? Doesn't look like, it. is there any public comment online on Zoom for this item? Uh, there's no public comment there. All right, let's bring it back to the commission for discussion or comments other than well done you, thank you. <laughs> there's some incredible um, numbers in there that you should be very proud of. I'm very impressed. Thank you. One question. Yeah. Um, Trevor, those two times that we were out of compliance, um, how long did it take us to get back into compliance? 
Uh, on the Kansas River E. coli event did not take us very long at all. We were only out of compliance for so uh, one month. So if you have to sample and submit to the state's a monthly permit limit, and if you miss it, you're you're out of compliance for that 30 days. And that, that was the same for the Walker Russo. Okay, thanks. I'll just echo the mayor's comments. Appreciate the information, appreciate these reports, especially as we head into the CIP and we'll ask obviously to have some big uh, expenditures in some of these areas to understand kind of where it's going and where it's coming from is important. So appreciate it. Thank you. Any other discussion or comments from commissioners? Nope. Okay, thank you again, Trevor. Um, appreciate that. Uh, we are to the second item. I wanna make sure commissioners are comfortable through the next item. Not seeing any any hands up okay our next item is to receive the presentation from the university of kansas center for public partnerships and research good evening commissioners this is leah roseland affordable housing administrator i hope you're doing well this evening as a part of our joint mission to end chronic homelessness douglas county and the city of lawrence have been working with the university of kansas center for public partnerships and research kucpbr to conduct a needs assessment to inform and assess the system-wide conditions and needs related to the goal of ending chronic homelessness. This is needs assessment aims to present the current state of homelessness in the county and to help equip leaders with the knowledge needed to make investments to address homelessness permanently. KUCPPR has completed an interim needs assessment report, which represents the preliminary phase of information gathering and analysis for the needs assessment. Once the final report is completed, we will be working to identify goals and prioritize strategies that impact needs identified in the report. At this time, I am very happy to introduce Owen B. Cox, Associate Researcher Senior with KUCPPR, who will present on the preliminary findings and recommendations in the report. And I want to extend my deepest gratitude to Owen and the KUCPPR team, Marian Boyd, for their work on this assessment and for being with us this evening. Owen, I'll turn it over to you. All right, thank you very much for that introduction. That was lovely. Um, I, what I wanna say first and foremost is to, to thank everyone uh, for allowing us to come and present a little bit um, about the Douglas County Homelessness Needs Assessment. Um, and, and that was exactly right. So this, what we're presenting on today is um, some of the findings uh, from that needs assessment uh, and what was, I believe, included within the agenda items uh, is gonna be that interim report. So we are still finalizing, working to the final, uh, toward a final um, needs assessment. And that should be out at the end of this month. Uh, and so uh, look forward to uh, presenting a little bit more on that uh, and uh, giving uh, a little bit more time for us to sort of clean up and polish that report so that we can really get the best product out there that we can um, for all of you. Uh, and I'd also be remiss if I didn't uh, thank all of the lovely community partners, uh, so individuals uh, and organizations that are working uh, on the issues of homelessness in the community. Uh, and then uh, the biggest thank you is also going to go to individuals with lived experience um, who were able to share um, some of their thoughts uh, and their experiences around homelessness in the community. So I want to make sure I get those, uh, those, those thank yous out there first and foremost, and then also to do a little expectation setting here. 
Um, as I said, uh, what you've received previously is the interim report. There is much more information that will be in the final report. Uh, this will include more information from individuals with lived experience with homelessness, uh, but all, also more information about some of the uh, community partners that we talked to. Uh, and so we uh, um, had multiple conversations with community partners uh, and have updated that as we've moved along in the process. So the interim report that you had is not the complete report. Uh, and so there are additional um, uh, services and findings that we had for community partners and individuals with needs uh, with lived experience in homelessness that'll be included in that final report released at the end of the month. Um, the other thing to say is this is also, it's a needs assessment. Um, so this in, intends to look at the needs across the community uh, in reference to homelessness. It's not specifically a strategic or comprehensive plan. Uh, but what we really hope is that this can inform a plan that really looks into um, sort of trying to reduce uh, the levels of homelessness uh, in the community, uh, you know, ideally someday down to zero. So uh, it's a needs assessment, not a strategic plan, uh, but we're really excited to share what we've got so far with you. And so if we move on to our next slide. We're just going to do a brief share about the KU Center for Public Partnerships and Research. Um, our mission uh, is to optimize the well-being of youth, children, and families, uh, and we do that through various ways, working with public entities such as the county and the city here uh, on different ways to sort of research uh, and evaluate programs uh, that they might be uh, might have um, be doing work on. Um, a previous work that we've done included work with the Greater Kansas City Coalition to End Homelessness, which is, which is the continuum of care that represents Jackson County, Missouri and Wyandotte County, Kansas. And we did a needs assessment around homelessness for them as well. That was completed in, in 2019 um, and uh, uh, has been, you know, utilized since then. Unfortunately, it was released just prior to the pandemic. Um, and so many changes have occurred, obviously, throughout that, uh, that system. Um, the other thing to mention is that we are part of an applied research team, Marianne and myself, who is joining on the call, uh, but there are other team members who have contributed to this uh, from our center as well. So we have um, uh, uh, quite a bit of uh, a larger team um, that works on various projects, uh, and they all contributed to this report. Um, so moving on, just to talk very briefly about some of our methodology. Um, uh, we had several key components uh, that we set forth uh, to, to endeavor to completing for this particular needs assessment. Um, the first is going to be uh, what we call a community data review. Uh, and this involved a period of data discovery in which we attempted to determine how many different data systems were actually being used uh, in the provision of services uh, for individuals experiencing or at risk of experiencing homelessness. Uh, and then we uh, used that review to work with service providers to try and collect information to create a picture of the population experiencing homelessness in Lawrence and Douglas County. The next piece uh, of work that we did uh, was just begin having community conversations, and we held these with local service providers and advocates uh, to gather their perspective on the community and the current uh, system that both alleviates but also might contribute to homelessness uh, within Lawrence and Douglas County. Uh, information was also gathered on how each program or an organization interacts with others in the community uh, and how their work attempts to impact the lives of individuals experiencing homelessness. Uh, uh, as I mentioned previously, the other thing that we did uh, was talk with individuals with lived experience. So we conducted semi-structured interviews um, utilizing a grounded theory approach uh, to better understand those experiencing uh, homelessness and particularly those who are uh, service involved. Uh, this method facilitated the exploration of potentially untapped approaches and strategies to support the homeless population in Douglas County. 
And indeed, the goal of, in, of engaging these individuals with lived experience uh, through semi-structured interviews is to aid the identification of more effective community-based strategies uh, to represent the experiences of homelessness uh, more comprehensively to leaders, policymakers, and the research community at large. Um, finally, I should also mention that there are some limitations that we uh, uh, encountered in the in, in doing this needs assessment, um, one of which is the sort of was hit on previously, there is a fragmented data system, which makes it difficult to come up with unduplicated counts uh, that can represent the entirety of the homeless population. Uh, it's also a population uh, that uh, is, can be difficult uh, to, to, to gather information on or to, or to hear the stories from. Uh, another aspect uh, that is a limitation is that the various data systems and the various programs that serve those individuals often have slightly different version uh, definitions, excuse me, of homelessness, which again makes the community just a little bit harder to pin down as far as um, who all is involved in that. Um, and, and another thing that goes along with that is that this is a population that is often invisible. Um, it, so uh, sometimes it is difficult to, to include their voices, but we uh, endeavored to do as well as we could on making sure that we cast um, uh, a, a, a large target area to try and get as many folks in uh, to uh, um, supply information for the needs assessment as we could. All right, uh, moving forward. Um, the next thing that we're going to do is talk a little bit about uh, findings and considerations um, and what we found during our needs assessment work. Um, just to, I'm already talking fairly quickly, but I know that we have a sort of limit on time. So I want to make sure that I'm going to move through these slides fairly quickly and as they cover and some of this material is covered in the preliminary report. Um, and I do want to provide just a little bit of additional time at the end to talk about uh, a little bit more, more in depth those uh, that information we heard from individuals with lived experience in homelessness. Um, so the first finding that we want to just uh, hit on right now is that uh, essentially the current housing options are not meeting the needs of this community. Um, we saw this in multiple forms of analysis uh, for this project, and uh, there are many factors uh, that come into play uh, into these housing difficulties. Uh, I think one of the ones that uh, sticks out, and I think this will not come as a surprise to all that many folks, is that housing affordability remains a deep concern in the community, and one that can make it difficult for the newly homeless or those at risk of homelessness uh, from finding uh, housing. In fact, every stakeholder, every program that we talked to spoke about this and mentioned this as one of the most needed resources to serve this community. Another key element uh, is being able to rent uh, housing if you actually are able to find, or uh, another key element is being able to rent housing if people are actually able to find affordable housing. So the extent that affordable housing does exist can often be difficult to gain entry to. Um, so the community could uh, not only use additional opportunities for individuals to attain a rental assistance, but also, also additional avenues to use that assistance. Um, requirements for uh, rental assistance programs and landlord willingness to accept tenants using rental assistance are two issues that are intertwined uh, and both need attention. So we need a more affordable housing and we need more affordable housing with landlords willing to rent it uh, for the rental assistance programs. Uh, but what we also heard is that even small scale um, housing issues can have an impact on an individual's ability to remain successfully housed. Um, both service providers and individuals with experience in homelessness spoke about the impact it would have on small scale changes that could even help find rentals with utilities included or lumped into single pay payments to decrease some of the initial burdens of transitioning into housing. Uh, so there's other opportunities to sort of work on the housing uh, uh, stock that we have, it's, it's affordability, and ways to make it um, more conducive to su uh, sustainable success for individuals who are transitioning out of homelessness. Uh, 
The next finding and consideration that we had to talk about um, is that um, we need a deeper understanding of the population experiencing homelessness. And this is uh, crucial to actually understanding the needs of the group and designing and implementing effective interventions, um, ideally with the input of those individuals with lived experience to really target uh, those, those interventions to that individual group. One of the things that leads to this um, is that, again, we'll talk about this uh, a little bit further on as well, is that we do have this um, uh, data situation where we have multiple data systems across multiple fighters um, in the county, in the city. Um, HMIS, or the Homeless Management Information System, it is good at individual, indiv identifying individuals with frequent interactions with the homeless response system. However, it's going to have difficulties in that it's really designed to meet, uh, to find and serve individuals um, who are using the federal the, uh, housing and urban development definition of homelessness, um, which is a little bit more narrow than some of the other data systems that are out there. Um, and again, this uh, leads to an incomplete picture uh, of the barrier and understanding the needs uh, to, for specific um, groups and targeting interventions to those groups. Um, for this reason, one of our upcoming considerations around collaboration is going to be especially key. Uh, and currently, uh, so that all uh, so that all parties involved can bring information about their clientele to the table. If we're going to have these compartmentalized systems, it's really important that we have discussions uh, and uh, uh, clear and transparent um, conversations around. Uh, who it all is involved in this uh, home, uh, community of individuals experiencing homelessness. Uh, our next finding and consideration that we put forward in the needs assessment um, is the fact that homelessness presents an equity issue within the community, within Lawrence and Douglas County. Uh, what we know from the data available is that minorities make up a more significant portion of those experiencing homelessness than they do in the general population. Um, with African-Americans represented five times higher in the homeless population than in the general population, uh, and indigenous uh, individuals also representing four, three to four times higher than the general population uh, based on, based, uh, other than what would be expected. Um, I should also, answer, mention, uh, also mention um, that uh, in several of conversations we had with um, community partners uh, and individuals experiencing homelessness, it was expressed that the account of indigenous individuals experiencing homelessness was actually even likely an undercount. And so that might be even a higher representation. Uh, this is often because uh, they are one of those groups that is difficult to measure. They often uh, double up as a means of finding shelter and have residents in participating in uh, various components of the homeless uh, response system. We also found that Latino and Latinx individuals made up a significant, more uh, a significantly higher population of the homeless population than they did the community population. Um, and so these are all components that we really need to consider. One of the other things I want to point out um, when it comes to equity uh, is uh, that HUD itself is making a new a renewed push toward equity, uh, and they released their first ever equity action plan. Came out in April of this year. And it has a focus on advancing equity and its delivery of homelessness assistance programs. Um, and this plan includes a review of policies that pose barriers uh, to housing for persons with criminal histories or their families, amongst other initiatives. Our next consideration, um, uh, also along the lines of looking at some of the demographics of the population experiencing homelessness, um, is, and this one is a little bit, uh, this one's somewhat unique for this community, and that is that uh, in Lawrence and Douglas County, uh, the rate of females experiencing homelessness is actually higher uh, than that the general trends are, both for the um, uh, state and for the nation. So uh, a little bit over 50% of the individuals uh, that we saw through the homeless management information system, and the coordinated entry system, um, we're identifying as female, whereas the national average usually is around 39% uh, or in the upper 30s when it comes to the amount of individuals identifying as gender. Uh, we're not 
totally sure on the reasons for this discrepancy uh, between, uh, between Lawrence Douglas County and, and uh, the state and the nation as a whole. Um, but when we talk to service providers, it, they seem to think that this is a, a trend that's been around. It's not like an anomaly of the specific data timeframe with which we gathered information. And that actually Lawrence has seen a consistent um, sort of 50% split between uh, female and male individuals experiencing homelessness. Um, some of those conversations with individuals and lived experiences uh, with, with homelessness, uh, several discussed uh, that there was a, a high availability of quality domestic violence services in the community uh, and that there might be a lack of those in surrounding communities. So that was just one of the pieces uh, that we thought we would bring forward is, is just we can't uh, like totally say for sure what that what the reason is why Lawrence's and Douglas County are sort of uh, unique in this in this trend. Uh, but there were some some thoughts uh, from individuals with lived experience around why that might be. Um, our next slide uh, is getting to that slide about collaboration. Um, again, talking a little bit about uh, uh, the data compartmentalization across the various provider-run uh, systems. Um, and collaboration is going to be critical uh, to systems change and the goal of ending homelessness in the community. Uh, we've already mentioned that uh, segmentation of data and the need for increased collaboration to alleviate issues that arise because of, because of it. Uh, this becomes increasingly important uh, with the use of coordinated entry uh, and a by-name list. This is essentially a list of individual, oh, it's intended to be a list of all individuals experiencing homelessness that is used to target services, interventions, and housing. So we need more collaboration to make sure uh, all the individuals who are experiencing uh, these life circumstances can get onto that list and be part of that um, prioritization process to receive housing services and interventions. Uh, we need everyone providing services uh, and support to come to the table and participate. So not just some of the organizations, but all of the organizations. Uh, without that collaboration, the system uh, can get bogged down with inefficiencies uh, as providers aren't fully aren't fully able to understand what services uh, are taking place and where and what is available to best serve clients in front of them. I think more importantly, though, even it, it creates a disjointed and confusing system for the individuals themselves who are experiencing homelessness. Uh, and it can build frustration as they try to navigate finding needed services and housing uh, in a system that seems not necessarily always communicating within itself. Um, the next slide uh, is going to talk a little bit about uh, permanent supportive housing uh, and um, uh, the fact that there are currently few, if any, permanent supportive housing options available. Corporation for Supportive Housing uh, just did their own uh, needs assessment that was geared directly at the need of permanent supportive housing in the community. Uh, and they found uh, nearly 400 units were needed across the city. Uh, and they sort of broke that up into the various groups. Uh, uh, they found that uh, at least 115 units of permanent supportive housing were needed for individuals experiencing homelessness or housing instability, and additional uh, uh, 39 units uh, are needed for justice reentry. And that actually gets kind of close to what we were hearing from community partners who shared that they felt like approximately 150 individuals would benefit from permanent supportive housing um, to try and help break that cycle of um, chronic homelessness. And that's backed up by the data that we pulled from the HMIS system as well. Um, I think one of the things that we can think through here is how to prioritize uh, permanent supportive housing for individuals experiencing homelessness and really could help reduce homelessness in the community, uh, which we understand is not a quick process. Uh, so having other immediate and intermediate options is also needed as we work toward building the type of permanent supportive housing units that would be necessary to try and sort of tackle this issue. Uh, next uh, funding uh, that we had is that uh, moving on, I guess, uh, to 
some of the preliminary themes and findings that we had when we actually did our conversations with individuals with lived experience. Um, I think these are great because I think these interviews really helped fill in the gaps about the experiences uh, of homelessness that the data can't really touch on, right? So quantitative data is great, but it can't really get necessarily to the full experience. And service providers are also great, but they only have a limited access to the experience of those individuals experiencing homelessness. Uh, and the inf in information that these individuals uh, provided us can help craft, uh, craft services and solutions to help individuals experiencing homelessness get, get and importantly, uh, sustain housing. Um, so the information that they can provide can really help us understand what is the best way to help them be successful uh, at, at moving it from uh, experiencing homelessness into a housed situation and then be successfully and sustainably housed in that in that place. I should note, <clears throat> I should note, there will be several quotes on these slides. I do want to note that all the names associated with quotes are pseudonyms. Uh, so uh, we want to make sure that we're protecting the anonymity of uh, anyone who participated with us. Uh, also thank them for their service, obviously. Uh, but just to make sure that we aren't actually using anyone's names, uh, this is uh, an anonymous uh, survey and excuse me, anonymous interviews that we uh, get with these folks. Um, the main preliminary themes that came out of this um, that we uh, sort of are going to dig a little bit deeper to in the next in the following slides um, are first and foremost the perceptions of home. Um, we talked with folks um, and asked them to tell us a little bit about the place that they live or that they would consider home. Uh, and in those conversations, we learned about um, how people experiencing homelessness perceive what makes a place feel like a home and share insights on their uh, idea of an ideal home, as well as what sort of housing situations aren't acceptable to them? What situations are gonna put the, are gonna set them up for, for failure uh, at sustaining their, their uh, house, housing status? Um, we also talked uh, a little bit about what quality supports look like. So thinking through quality social support uh, in those conversations, uh, we discussed uh, many of the elements of social support that can help individuals experiencing homelessness access, access the resources that, resources that they need to meet their uh, basic needs. Um, and these range, supports range from social emotional support from other individuals who are in similar situations, as well as functional supports from service providers in the community at large to really understand what are the supports that could uh, best set you up for success. And then finally, we have a section on just wisdom that was shared with us from the homeless uh, or uh, yeah, from the community of, of individuals experiencing homelessness. Uh, and they had many insights to share about the, how the community uh, and its leaders, service providers, uh, and community members at large could support individuals who are houseless and improve the community response uh, to prevent and end homelessness. All right, so let's move in uh, to those themes. Um, uh, and our first one here is going to be talking a little bit again about perceptions of home. Um, and one of the things that I really do want to highlight here is that first arrow or bullet point that we do have. And one of the things uh, that they talked about um, frequently is home is a place where someone doesn't have to be hypervigilant. Uh, and this is something that a lot of people who are experiencing homelessness have expressed that when they are when they are unhoused and are not uh, and do not have a place that they call their home, uh, they are often hypervigilant, increasing their anxiety and their stress. They are worried about um, uh, both physical and uh, um, emotional violence that might be ha might occur on the streets, uh, but also just uh, hypervigilant about where their things are, their ability, they need to be on guard to make sure uh, that their safety is ensured and that they have the, the, uh, their, the belongings that they need uh, to continue to exist. Um, and so they, they shared this, uh, nearly every single individual shared this as something that they think uh, would be alleviated uh, or would be need to be felt to really consider a place a home. Um, the other thing that they talk about when it comes to um, having a, a home uh, is the ability for them 
to have agency to help meet their own basic needs. Um, so this is, they want to have this space to work toward and sustain housing by meeting their own basic needs. So supports can be offered, but they also wanna have the ability to have agency to do some of the things that make uh, a place feel like a home. So cooking their own meals, uh, having the ability to, uh, you know, decorate or um, make a home feel more like a place that can be lived in or that is their own. Uh, and they're really interested, in, again, in meeting those incremental needs. They're also very interested in really a place that is a place to live modestly, a fairly simple place where, again, they don't have too much to worry about um, and that they can really work toward um, getting themselves in a position where they can meet their basic needs and meet the needs of being a successful tenant in that particular um, structure or that particular home. The next um, uh, finding from our conversations that we want to talk a little bit about here or the next theme, I should say, uh, that we learned uh, from individuals with lived experience um, is a little bit around what quality support looks like and can feel like for individuals. Um, and so uh, in these interviews, uh, participants frequently described that when service providers and staff had the conditions to provide individualized support, um, it really helped them. Um, it really helped them uh, be able to uh, take the necessary steps to increase their ability to move forward to self-sufficiency goals, maintain uh, sobriety, uh, and receive the kind of genuine social support that was needed. Um, participants described that quality support from staff looked like others providing them with functional support uh, to navigate some of those, those things. And that, that when providers are felt to provide genuine care uh, for them, that they really um, made them feel as if that they were really um, uh, able to move forward and, and really helped them actually model um, a way of, uh, of, of working with others that really helped them sort of, you know, want to, want to move sustainably forward and reach their uh, self-sufficiency goals. Um, another thing that they described that would be helpful when it comes to social support is also having uh, social support networks. Uh, they described some of it as people who get it. Um, and this might be individuals who have already or previously experienced this homelessness. Um, and they talked about many programs that offered support groups or facilitated facilitated relationships in the, within the housing environment to promote friendship and really have that support and structure uh, social time that really helped with their daily routines and really provided them sort of a scaffolding to know that they um, could, could, could can continue on uh, and sustain their housing. And the other thing that they mentioned that we think was very interesting um, is that these individuals themselves were keenly aware um, about the various workforce challenges uh, that were ex being experienced. Um, uh, many of them described uh, knowing that or seeing that workers were often spread fairly thin. Uh, so those individuals who were providing support to the individuals um, experiencing homelessness uh, were, they themselves were stressed and were spread thin. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, in addition to that, uh, on occasion, uh, although rarely, participants would also describe service providers as lacking potentially some of the knowledge that might best be able to serve them. Uh, but they did say that everyone really is doing their best. Although their interactions with providers seem to really be in a positive manner, um, but they said, you know, sometimes it does seem like the luck of the draw. Perhaps you find a provider whose caseload is low, and then you have the ability to really uh, sort of um, work together uh, on those supports needed to really help um, um, get that person on a positive footing when it comes to uh, housing. Uh, but sometimes you might run into a provider who is overworked and it would be, it's just more difficult for them to give you the type of care that might uh, be most beneficial to that individual experiencing homelessness. Um, 
And I think the last uh, little bit from the um, individuals experiencing homelessness that we want to talk about here is the wisdom that there was provided by individuals experiencing home uh, houselessness. Um, and again, um, so essentially uh, going back to the workforce, um, they said that their effective the, the effectiveness of um, services were highly dependent on the individuals who were delivering those services. So individuals with enough time, headspace, and training to be able to provide those services really provided really great um, um, services and really able to help these individuals. Um, uh, and they said that it was evident that it was uh, they were spared uh, that they were sp spread fairly thin. Um, they also just described that the fact that it really helps to have individualized services when it comes to working with the um, workforce providing services to individuals experiencing homelessness. It's just really um, helpful to really make it seem like it's an individualized service plan that they are really invested in uh, those individuals experiencing homelessness. Um, and in particular, they said that one of the things that takes a lot of work and is difficult is really some of the functional support pieces um, that support individuals uh, on their journey out of homelessness. Um, and that, I think every single participant um, sort of discussed the importance of having individuals help them get things like government identification and other documents, because um, these are really important uh, to obtaining some of those services um, that really get those individuals on, on the pathway out of homelessness. Um, another thing that they talked about um, was the need for um, more crisis mental health support. Uh, in particular, they're interested here in uh, crisis mental health support that can help divert those initial interactions away um, from um, sort of emergency response uh, in things. So things like uh, trying to have a differential response with crisis mental health supports as opposed to um, uh, interventions with the justice system, or the criminal justice system, or with um, uh, you know even even um, uh, medical attention uh, immediately. Because some of the times, what they said is. Crisis mental health supports could really de-escalate a situation, whereas oftentimes some of those other interactions uh, can make an individual feel more anxious and more um, sort of uh, uh, reactive uh, in those uh, those uh, conversations or in those um, interventions. Um, another thing that they uh, that many of them talked about was again this goes back to that hypervigilance uh, piece of it, um, but really they just really would like a place to be able to keep their things, a safe place where they can store uh, some of their belongings, uh, where they could then uh, not have to worry quite as much um, about the situations that they're in and not have to continually use cognitive energy to think through where their stuff is, what do they need to keep track of, uh, and how the loss of those things can impact them and send them back, uh, you know, back into the system where they, have, they need, again, more functional supports because they've lost their IDs or they've lost their um, um, paperwork that they need for services. Uh, and then the other thing I just wanted to hit on is in these conversations, we also talked with them uh, a little bit about, uh, you know, what their day to day life is. So just asking them to talk with us a little bit about what um, a 24 hour period feels like, uh, but then also talk with them a little bit about what are the things in their lives that um, allow them to experience joy. Um, and they mentioned a, a host of different things, uh, but these conversations really got to um, the idea is that in all of these supports and programs and services provided to them, um, thinking through ways that they can um, allow for those experiences of joy is also a really good way to make um, that process feel more like you're on your way to, to finding a home and finding a place within the community. Uh, and so they mentioned even just some small things like being able to like, uh, 
take time, not worry about where your stuff is to, to and interact in, in puzzle games or interact in a way why, like cooking uh, or just find a way to have time to, um, uh, to listen to music. Uh, and so just one of the things that they, uh, you know, brought to light was that uh, finding ways for service provision to also bring in ways to experience joy with these individuals would be very helpful uh, in, the, in their ability to succeed in finding and maintaining house, uh, housing. Um, I think our next slide uh, is going to be um, just a couple little, um, uh, uh, excuse me, a, a couple graphics here, uh, just looking at sort of this idea um, of the current system and where we want to get. Um, and again, the idea here is that housing insecurity persists in Douglas County, and this can often be because of inconsistent and efficient offerings of support, um, which perpetuates this sort of chronic homelessness, right? So this idea that it's cyclical. Uh, and the idea here is that uh, there are supports within the community, but sometimes those are short-lived. Uh, and so perhaps an individual gets a bunch of supports or is able to make, uh, find supports, but those then uh, often dissipate. Uh, and that person once again finds themselves uh, needing additional support uh, or finds themselves uh, experiencing hopelessness. And then they're back, they get back in line, right? So they're, they're, it takes a while again to receive services and this perpetuates the this, this cycle of this happening over and over again. Um, and what we're looking to do in the next graphic um, is to try and figure out ways to break uh, that cycle. Um, and so the way that we uh, are thinking through breaking this chronic cycle is by persisting, by, um, providing consistent wraparound supportive services to those who struggle um, to maintain um, permanent supportive housing. So this gets back um, to what I was talking about previously on um, the permanent supportive housing slide, um, is that uh, we need to find uh, ways to um, bring all of the individuals and all of the um, programs that serve these individuals into a collaborative environment where we can provide permanent supportive housing and have those specific individualized services targeted to those individuals so that they can um, uh, maintain their housing uh, and get themselves uh, back onto uh, a, a footing uh, where they can uh, easily and accurately um, sort of sustain their housing moving forward. All right. Um, and then I think I just wanted to mention that a lot of the things that we talked about in some of those considerations, there are actually initiatives that are underway currently or have begun during the needs time that the needs assessment has been taking place. Uh, and so just a couple examples of those, uh, just to know that you know, the, the community that is working on this really is already trying to put some of these initiatives in place. Um, some of the things that we have been hearing about um, our adaptive housing solutions. So this is really trying to target housing to the needs uh, of those individuals. So designing and building housing uh, that works with that population. Um, so uh, thinking through what is the what is the best way um, to have a person in a in a in a housing structure itself uh, that is developed for their needs. Um, one of the things that we have heard about is uh, increased landlord engagement. I think this one is is really important. Um, uh, we have both uh, increased landlord uh, engagement and also collaboration amongst those groups that actually work directly with landlords to really understand their needs, hopefully to bring those landlords in to understand a little bit more about the population and the use of um, uh, rental assistance uh, and what that might mean um, and sort of how they can really help um, sort of advance that system. Um, finally, we also are seeing uh, some enhanced data collection and collaboration efforts, which I'm really excited about. Um, uh, uh, efforts around um, bringing together uh, 
service providers within the community to talk a little bit about coordinated entry in that by name list I mentioned. Uh, another interesting uh, initiative is around MyRC, which can look at uh, individuals who are hitting the emergency response system more often. Uh, this could be a way to help prioritize individuals on the by name list uh, to get those individuals onto what the next item is a, the housing first pilot, which is a, an, um, uh, an idea of how to uh, really target housing uh, to individuals, get them housed first, and then help them understand and work on their barriers with that um, wraparound uh, supportive services. Uh, and the other uh, uh, initiative I just wanted to mention quickly um, was the assertive uh, community treatment team. So this is groups that go out into the community, um, uh, a team that goes out into the community uh, and really targets interventions right to the people where they are at. Um, and so uh, these are a couple of initiatives that I just want to mention quickly. Um, I think I have definitely got over my allotted time. So I'll just say the next steps uh, is for us to um, finish up the final report and then release that uh, to the community. We'll continue to be participating in the homelessness workforce um, group. And so we'll continue to receive feedback prior to that report being released. Um, but uh, that is it. There's a couple mentions of other names from people uh, who worked on this project with me at the Center for Public Partnerships and Research. A few others that aren't mentioned there, but if you have any additional questions, feel free to email any one of those individuals and we'll definitely get back to you. I'd love to talk to you. So thank you. <laughs> thank you so much, Owen. I appreciate that um incredible work that you all have done um are, are there any questions or comments from commissioners right now for owen or leah or their team um owen can you give me an idea i think you said that the final report's going to be out at the end of this month is it going to come with recommendations so it will come with, uh, similarly, we are wording them um, findings and considerations. Uh, and so they, uh, again, it's, it's not necessarily a, a, like I said, it's not a comprehensive plan or a strategic plan around specific elements, but it should allow folks to then use that information to target them. Thank you. Well, this is Commissioner Sellers. I have a couple of questions. Um, in your slide about additional avenues, there was something that talked about, uh, you mentioned the lack of landlord rental assistance. And so could you maybe thread that out a little more, like understanding the lack of access? To, is it just the lack of individuals having access to rental assistance, or is it just the lack of access to properties that, to landlords that, provide i know you spoke to that but I, I felt like there was maybe something else a little bit more to that that section or was i reading into sure. it sure no i think i think the idea there is that it's it's a both and scenario um is that i think that the community could use more rental assistance and the availability of that but for that to actually be successful you need to have landlords willing to accept rental assistance. Uh, and obviously there's um a lot that goes into that uh, there's obviously landlords have um uh, you know, their own thought process on, on, on how and why that can work. There are rental assistance um, sometimes for the landlord does come with more hoops for them themselves to jump through. Um, uh, but um, uh, to the extent that you get more rental assistance available in the community, you need to have somewhere for those individuals to actually use that rental assistance. Okay. And would that be to, in your recommendation, is that in addition to addition, you know, a, co a comprehensive um, 
of services. So more more landlords participating in rental assistance in addition to a more supportive housing, or is it as you get more permanent supporting housing, then we can kind of reduce the need of rental assistance? Can you kind of speak to that? Is there is there a relationship to that? Um, yes, I mean, so there's uh, obviously there's uh, in some sense a continuum of needs when it comes to permanent supportive housing. Some people are going to need a more intensive version of permanent supportive housing than others. Um, I think that those individuals with the more intensive needs um, are likely going to be would be harder to be housed um, in properties that are. Uh, um, property owner owned or uh, property management company uh, owned properties. Uh, I think that because of the way that the, the, I guess just speaks it's to speak, speak plainly, because of the lack of affordable housing in Lawrence, you're going to need uh, rental assistance to be available, but you're also going to need to be have just more units of affordable housing itself. Um, and it would be great if you could get both affordable housing and lords, landlords who are willing to take rental assistance at the same time. I understand that there's factors that go into that. So you kind of have to work the system all at once in some sense. Okay. And then also to that point there on the slide, it, it was under the Corporation for Supportive Housing. It said that there was a need for approximately 115 units of permanent supportive housing. Is that... And it speaks to individuals. So is that units as far as single person units or is that a mixture of single person family units? How I'm just trying to get a more understanding of what does a unit consist of by defined? Is that for one person or a unit could be up to so many people in the household? Yeah, so it, it refers to units. Um, and so that could be a family and that would potentially have more rooms within that in that particular unit. Um, uh, don't want to speak to it much in depth and detail on, on their specific needs assessment because I don't have it in front of me. Um, but yeah, so uh, it was 115 units, I believe, um, for individuals um, uh, experiencing homelessness or housing in instability. And so those were permanent supportive housing. And that was just a portion of the overall permanent supportive housing. Uh, but that was what they sort of uh, using um, their formula saw as the need for individuals experiencing homelessness. Okay, and then as far as the, the data piece, I know you stuck on that a bit, because I know most of our HUD funding agencies use HMIS, and you spoke to where there was a, what did I say? Oh, just kind of, we were, some inconsistencies in the tracking of data system. Was there any mention or in your findings, did you see where there was, some type of coordinated referral tracking system or was there organizations that were some organizations and maybe not all of them were working agencies were working together as far as tracking um kind of like referrals if you know someone was receiving services over here or they were hopping the services over here is was there did you come across that in in your findings or in your research yeah so there's not a system that allows for that currently for an individual to be tracked from place to place, which is one of the reasons that I, I try to hit on the sort of the need for, uh, you know, some of the initiatives that are currently under, even the, including um, the, you know, the, the, uh, the work group, the homelessness uh, and housing work group, uh, individuals can get together and sort of talk about 
who they're seeing, what are their clientele, and how they're sort of hitting that system. Uh, I think the, the best example of this is the coordinated entry group that meets to talk about individuals experiencing homelessness uh, and sort of, they, they call it a prioritization, but they basically have a list of individuals, we call it a by name list, uh, and those individuals are prioritized based on um, uh, sort of need, uh, and those individuals then um, are essentially are the ones that are sort of are housed in, in some sense in order. It doesn't work in a straight line all the time, but that is the, the basic idea of it. And so understanding that we need all providers to be able to come to that table and talk about the clients that they have so that they can get on a list like that to be able to become housed is, is sort of what the idea is. So um, if there isn't going to be a overall one-stop referral system for all providers in the community, what you need is to have everyone at the table when you come to discuss things like housing. Further questions or? Do you have more commissioner? <laughs> Probably more comments. Okay. Questions. I mean, I can go on all day, but I, I won't. Owen, oh, thanks for the, oh, go ahead. I apologize, Commissioner Finkel, that is the Arizona Affordable Housing Administrator. Um, I just wanted to respond to Commissioner Seller's earlier question. I pulled up the CSH needs assessment for supported housing needs, and um, that report states that there are 356 units required to meet the needs of individual households or households with only adults, and 25 are needed to meet the needs of families. Can you repeat that number again for me, Leah? 356 are required to meet the needs of individual households and 25 are needed to meet the needs of families. And that includes permanent supportive housing options for other groups of individuals also include, including their like uh, options for elderly folks. Okay. Um, following up one of the, as you mentioned, to me, one of the most interesting and, and insightful parts of this was your conversations with individuals experiencing homelessness. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about, you know, that data collection? Like, where did you meet them? How many, how many are we talking? Just a little bit more about that, because I'm, I'm very intrigued by a lot of that information. I just want to know a little bit more about that as I use it later. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And I should say that uh, in a in a presentation and with me talking that fast, it's uh, it's impossible for me to give the nuance of all the conversations that, that we oh, sure. we had. And so I really uh, look forward to people being able to look at the, the final report when it comes out. Um, but yeah, so we um, in our process of data discovery and working with community partners, we worked with some of those community partners to try and make connections to individuals who are experiencing homelessness or who had recently experienced uh, homelessness within the community. So that was one of our avenues of finding folks to talk with us. Um, uh, the other one is that we went to various sort of like meetings. So we had the homelessness workforce and we had other, we told uh, community partners, if you have individuals that you think are interested, have them work with us, uh, I guess we work through the providers or through the, the contacts to set up those interviews uh, and uh, we're able to do it sort of that way. 
Um, and so again, I don't, none of the work that we did could have been done without the certainly the individuals with lived experiences, uh, but also um, the the providers and um, community advocates that made those connections for us. Um, when it comes to individuals that we actually were then able to interview, we did um, uh, ten of the full in-depth interviews with individuals experiencing homelessness, uh, and we were able to get um, a wide variety of experience when it comes to homelessness. So individuals who had been chronically homelessness, individuals who were experiencing homelessness for the first time. We also got a wide variety of demographics, um, so um, racial categories, gender categories, um, and, and some different ages in that, in that grouping as well. Thank you very much. I want to have one more question. I know you brought up um, HUD's equity action plan, and, we, and I know a little bit because I was reading part of the plan, but I know that oftentimes individuals who need to receive services, um, whether through a housing authority or a HUD-funded facility, some of those barriers could include, you know, like if there's an eviction notice or um, if a person's, you know, not incarcerated, but I think charged, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but do you, do you see some of that being some of the barriers is that another barrier that then trickles down to the municipal level and how we're able to utilize funds and resources to help individuals? Because if someone, let's say someone wants to receive services through the housing authority, but they have an eviction on their, mm -hmm. under their name, then they're not able to receive those services. So then someone who, you know, th then they would need to use, they would have to go somewhere else if that gap, if we have the ability to fill that gap at another agency. So do you see something like a little bit more high level policy advocating on, you know, on the behalf of commissioners or a city to go to HUD to say, remove these type of barrier, you know, remove these type of restrictions would be, would be a, another opportunity for us to serve more individuals efficiently and effectively. Yeah, I think those are opportunities that that are out there to do that um, and to think through other ways um, that you can reduce barriers. One of the things, though, and this is why the system is really hard to to make change on, is that um, you're still so if you if you go to HUD or you go to, to whoever it might be and say, we need, we don't think that you should have uh, uh, moratoriums on individuals who have had evictions recently from receiving assistance or um, the felonies, whatever it might be, you still then need to interact with other elements of the system to try and help understand, help them understand why these people are, st are still great tenants and they should still be able to provide housing. So uh, I think, again, back to the landlord part, um, if landlords see that an individual uh, has uh, a felony but has a has rental assistance there's nothing to stop them from just saying I don't want uh, like I'm not going to accept you as a tenant because you have uh, you know you can actually just say I don't, I'm not going to accept anyone that has a, a voucher at this point right um, and so those are some of the problems that just getting rid of some of those might not work because uh, you also have to reduce sort of I'm just going to say it, like landlord stigma when it comes to some of those elements as well. Any other questions? Um, let's go ahead then and open this up to public comment. Is there anyone in the room who would like to comment on this item? Bless you. Thank you. There is. 
<clears throat> My name is John Crable, and I'm here tonight representing Justice Matters and specifically our Ending Homelessness Committee, of which I'm one of the co-chairmen. And there's a few of my folks sitting back here, too. Um, a few other activities that I'm involved with that are associated with homelessness here in Douglas County include the fact that I manage Jubilee Cafe at my church. Um, I work occasional shifts as an emergency relief DSA at Lawrence Community Shelter. Uh, fact, turned down two opportunities, be there at midnight tonight, just while I've been here. Uh, volunteer each winter. Uh, with our winter emergency shelter program, and I'm on the Douglas County Built for Zero team. The issue of homelessness here, specifically the initiative to literally end homelessness here, defined as reaching functional zero, is to say the least a pretty big deal to us. It's a really big deal to us because it's an incredibly big deal to the people that are experiencing it, like this gentleman sitting right here. We came here tonight to hear, as you did, uh, the report that was, was just given by Owen and his team at KUCPPR. I want to I wanna point out that there was a statement made in the agenda item report on this topic for tonight's meeting that says, and I quote, this report represents the preliminary phase of information gathering and analysis for the needs assessment, end quote. And all of that's absolutely true. But I'm here tonight to relay to you two very specific messages. One of those is simply to say thank you. Thank you for the support and the commitment that you've made as a body already to end homelessness in our city and to end homelessness in our county. And I'm using your own words, your own words. And I quote, Douglas County and the city of Lawrence have a mission of ending chronic homelessness in the community over the next three years, end quote. Came from, came from you guys. That, that, that's not my words. And so we thank you for that. And secondly, simply to either point out or perhaps to remind, I'm not sure which it is, you and, and to point out and to remind all of us that this report that we just heard Hi. about which was really preliminary, uh, is, is the preliminary phase of all of this. No one said it himself. This, this is a needs assessment. It is not a comprehensive plan. So we're going to advocate, as we always have, for a comprehensive plan. This report represents incredible work with exactly the level of data and information that we need for the next phase of this work. So let's just be sure, I'm sure you will, but let's just be sure that we don't take this report and put it on a shelf where it'll gather dust. Thank you. Thank you. Is there more public comment? Uh, 
Again, I'm Tim Olson, and I'm one of the homeless. I, uh, I'm right here. You can give me uh, all the questions you want to have answered. I can give them to you. I live it daily. I am seeing couples come out daily to include it into our group. It's terrible. It's wrong. It, we should have housing that Look at the other communities in the local area, Ottawa, even for an example. The prices are half of what we pay here. I understand we have the big college, we have other college, we, we have all of that. But there should still be a housing where people can afford to live. We're only at $15 an hour minimum wage. That ain't enough. It's 25 to make it for a living. People need to understand, you got to put the math together. I'm no magic man. It's simple. If you ain't making the money, I can't get a house. We all need jobs. The jobs are there, but the money ain't there. I've got college behind me. But yet I'm out here on the street. It's not right. I can't make it on $15 an hour. I don't care who you are. You wouldn't either. There's not one of us in here that can make it $15 an hour on your own. You got to be able to eat. It's all part of it. We all need to understand it's not one man's problem. It's everybody's problem, and the families are getting bigger out there. My area where I'm at, when I first went out there, it was seven people. It's now 22, and increasing daily. And I kid you not, daily. It's terrible. We have to find a way to answer these problems. I can help. We all can. We just need to work together. I, I really will. I will submit anything you want, any questions you have. I'm more than willing to give you answers and as best I can. I think we all need to work this together. It's important. Homelessness isn't a problem. I work hard every day. The problem is the money. The money is the problem. I could find a house if I really, really wanted to. Time. I don't have the money. Thank you. Thank you all. Uh, I'm Sherilyn Wells, and I have been around this situation off and on for decades. I felt like I don't want to medicalize homelessness, but I see people in very intense mental distress that are homeless. I don't like to use the system's words, but I see people that have schizophrenia that are sleeping in tents, tarps. They are absolutely not able to negotiate whatever needs to be done to become unhomeless. I felt like the state of Kansas after so-called mental health reform from talking to them, I felt like they were in a state of denial. 
about what was going on, that the situation, I worked with the peer group here that started in the 1970s. It had always been a problem for people with mental health issues, and it only got dramatically worse afterwards. And I quite frankly felt like the state of Kansas was in a state of denial. They should have come to the cities and the counties and said, this problem is now yours. We don't have some big overall plan. If something's going to be done, you have to do it. If we're going to welcome folks back from state hospitals or people that would have previously been in the state hospitals, there are people, believe me, sleep in the streets that under the old regime would be sitting in the state hospital. And I don't want to be too dramatic, but I feel like we went from kind of warehousing people in these big state hospitals to warehousing them in the streets. And it's happened all across the United States. It's shameful and tragic. And I, I do hope and I am so glad that sort of the climate around homelessness and the honesty about it, that from years ago, it has changed. That, you know, the city and county have decided that you're going to take some responsibility. I would also like to say that I feel like there is a racialized aspect to this, that not only... I know black, the black folks and native folks are more than capable of speaking up for themselves, but they are not only have been homeless more, they have been dying more. Um, especially, I've known a lot of the Native Americans that have seemed to me have had very short lifespans. And I would say, you know, the uh, whatever you want to call it, the transgenerational trauma of the way that our black and brown brothers that need help have experienced time that I feel like that is a real serious issue. Thank you. Thank you. Any more public comment in the room? All right, let's see if there's anyone online in Zoom who would like to make public comment on this item. Gabby Boyle. Hi, friends. Um, thank you so much, Owen, for um, providing that presentation. Um, it was really enlightening and once again kind of brought to the surface the systemic roots of Lawrence's housing crisis. Um, you know, as upsetting as it was, it's also unsurprising that our neighbors who are most affected by systemic oppression, including Black community members, Indigenous community members, women and disabled folks, are also, you know, disproportionately affected by housing instability. And I want to highlight, too, that um, these are also the folks who are disproportionately more likely to have to use supports like housing choice vouchers and rental assistance to pay their rents. Um, but unfortunately, as I'll was already touched on um, multiple points um, in the evening. We have a lack of available housing that accepts housing choice vouchers or other non-traditional income sources. Um, there is a list of available properties maintained by the housing authority and I reviewed several months of those lists. And in that sample, um, only 80% of landlords accepted housing choice vouchers. Um, you know, that number hasn't changed in spite of the fact that there has been significant funding for financial incentives for landlords, that there's damage mitigation funds available to landlords, um, that there's been targeted community outreach and engagement to landlords that's coming directly from 
the Housing Authority and other service providers. There's currently an 18 month long wait list for the voucher program. Um, and one of the major causes of this bottleneck is that lack of properties that will accept um, assistance. Um, so there are folks who are currently experiencing homelessness or who are at a critical risk that are potentially having to wait over a year um, to two years um, for our community to support them. Um, there were also 500 folks served in the last year by the Housing Stabilization Collaborative with rental assistance. So again, um, that's 500 households who could potentially be facing homelessness if their landlord decided to no longer accept um, their assistance. So, um, you know, protecting the most vulnerable folks in our community is something that we talk about a lot. It's at the core of Lawrence's strategic plan. And yet we're still having this conversation about how the most vulnerable people in our community are struggling every day to find housing and keep housing and just feel welcomed here. Um, you know, this is an urgent and complicated crisis. It's something that's deeply embedded in, in systems, in systemic oppression, in systemic inequity, and it requires solutions that go beyond um, surface level funding or community outreach. Like, we really need to change um, systems of housing in Lawrence. I know that we've been talking about creating protections for source of income um, since December 2020. And yet, in spite of, you know, a year and a half of having those conversations, nearly every single day someone is displaced, um, forced into an unsafe housing situation or facing homelessness um, because um, they are not able to find housing that accepts their voucher, their landlord chooses that they no longer want to accept vouchers or rental assistance, etc. Um, adding protections for source of income to our city's discrimination chapter um, would, one, address people I'm who are currently homeless. Thank you. Thank you. Is there anyone else online who has any comments? Uh, that's all the comment here. Okay, let's bring it back to the commission. Just kind of a, a follow-up to John's question. I'm not sure um, anyone here is, I know and Bobby's not the one to answer this question and Lee, I'm not sure you're prepared to, but um, wh what is the next step on the strategic plan? What, after this final report comes in May, is there something scheduled thereafter? Um, or what do you see as the next step? This is Leah Roslin, Affordable Housing Administrator. I'm wondering if Danny um, might like to speak to the Housing Initiatives Division plan after the final report is released. Good evening, Mayor Commissioners. Danny Walters with the uh, Housing Initiatives Division. Um, we have our new staff members finally on staff with us. And um, we have, we're trying to put together a plan to react to this plan. So a lot of that is going to be collaboration and coordination with the county, with the um, Housing and Homeless Stakeholders Group that's meeting. Um, that's kind of our next step is once the once the full report comes out, we, we get a pretty good idea of where those gaps are right now that we're looking at. But further conversation will go um, will go forward with the city and the county in terms of, of how how we respond to this. And Danny, thanks for that. Do, do you think some of that will um be ready in time for the 2023 budget discussion or is that more of an ongoing discussion? Danny Walters with the Housing Initiatives Division. Um, I feel like that will be an ongoing living conversation for a very long time. Um, no, it's, it's, I understand that part. Yeah, yes. but I mean, I, I we will probably have a work plan 
I, I would assume that there'll be a work plan sometime, you know, but it'll probably be more towards the end of the summer, early fall. Um, just as we're kind of getting a grip on, on what we're, what we're looking at here and not to mention we're putting out fires at the same time with, with, you know, some different issues going on. So, um, we can certainly set a goal to have that be part of the, of the budget conversations. And, and I think that before 2023, before January, there'll certainly be, certainly be direction. So. Thank you. Any other questions, comments? Well, there's obviously a lot there for us to digest um, and to hope for. Um, thank you again, Owen and your team um, and Leah for bringing this to us and all your hard work. Thank you. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm getting the indication that uh, my teammates would like a break. Um, I will say let us return at eight. Well, the timer just changed there at 849. Yeah. Welcome back to the June 14th, 2022 City Commission meeting. Um, our next item is a regular agenda item to receive an update on the Field Operations Campus project. Porter, um, could you allow Alex Reeves to share screen? I will. Okay, thank Ready you. Ready to go. Okay, great. Um, good evening, Mayor and Commissioners. I'm Andy Inns, Engineering Program Manager for the Municipal Services and Operations Department. I will be presenting an update on the community engagement efforts for the Field Operations Campus Project uh, with the design team from Dakewells Architecture, Ortel Architects, and CFS Engineers. Last October, we presented an update to the Commission on the project and requested authorization to use half of the previously approved schematic design funding to address neighborhood concerns we heard during meetings in June and August of 2021. Um, tonight, we're providing an update on how we address the neighborhood concerns and what we heard from them during our recent neighborhood meeting on May 24th. So during tonight's presentation, we'll give a brief project background and how the project aligns with the city's strategic plan. We'll review the original campus layout and concerns the neighborhood had with that layout. And we'll discuss how those concerns were addressed with the revised campus layout and then what we heard during our neighborhood meeting on May 24th. Finally, we'll provide an updated schedule and costs and discuss next steps on the project. Uh, next slide, please. So a little bit of the uh, project background here. During the first phase of this project, the design team developed the Field Operations Campus conceptual plan. Uh, basically, we wanted to understand how the Field Operations Divisions work together and the conditions of the facilities they work in. So based on this information, the design team determined how the divisions should be grouped what the new facilities might look like, and then how much they might cost. 
um, and then how those facilities could be phased. So Dan McGann is going to uh, provide a little bit more detail of what they found in that first uh, phase of the project. Thanks, Andy, and uh, hello, commissioners. Good evening, uh, Dan McGinn with Dakewell's Architecture. So one of the first things uh, the design team did was visit all the field operations to see how work got done and record the existing square footages and conditions. And we did this for each division and consistently across the board um, found that although they were doing a, you know, a really admirable job with what they had, the working conditions were often very cramped and the buildings were in uh, dire need of deferred maintenance and increased square footage. Next slide. And as we looked into the existing buildings, we also began to see the challenges at hand uh, especially in the 11th and Haskell area, you know, in that area, you have solid waste in the central maintenance garage and streets and stormwater, um, filling station, horticulture and, um, and forestry. The blue area, you see kind of the, the general background on, in that map uh, is the 100 year floodplain. And the red area is the actual floodway, the zone that is designed to carry actual floodwaters and debris during a flooding event. Um, so one big challenge is that you can't really improve these key facilities. It would violate a city ordinance to uh, improve a property in that dangerous condition of being in a floodway. Next slide. Um, this chart looks at the top four challenges we saw in the current operations for the divisions, um, needing major deferred maintenance, being critically undersized, having site size limitations, and being in restricted floodway areas. Uh, red rec the red rectangles denote a critical issue for that division, and the pink pink denotes a substantial but solvable issue, and the white den denotes no major issue at this time. So of all the slides we've shown you in our previous updates, I think it's safe to say that it's this one that really alerted you to the combined critical condition of so many of the field operations facilities. So our original directive was to fit all of these field operations onto the farmland site, which we've previously uh, presented to you all as the master plan. So we'll call that option A. And tonight, as uh, as Andy mentioned, we'll update you on an option B that we've been working on that's in response to some neighborhood feedback. And you know, uh, the basic idea there is reducing the size of the campus uh, a bit to include only the eight critical divisions that benefit most from being located on the same campus. And Andrew's gonna show that to you here in a minute. And yeah. Okay. So um, the project aligns with the city's strategic plan in several key areas. Um, it will address multiple regulatory compliance issues, including facilities in the floodway at 11th and Haskell, um, as Dan had mentioned, and also um, coordination with the farmland remediation project. It's uh, one of the major benefits of, of having the campus on that site. Um, the project will improve working conditions for staff and increase the efficiency of key city services. Got a couple uh, photos here just, you know, showing the conditions of the existing facilities and then another another one of the flooding. Um, next slide, please. So the project was scored uh, in the city's OpenGov software for alignment with the strategic plan. Key highlights from the scoring are the regulatory compliance as well as engaged and empowered teams. Environmental sustainability also scored well for potential improvements 
that aren't possible at the existing facilities. Uh, one example of that is um, the existing facilities at 11th and Haskell likely won't be able to have electric vehicles uh, charging stations due to their location within the floodway. Um, and I know that is a, a real goal for the city to um, have electric vehicles um, across the fleet in the future. Um, I would like to mention to the, the bottom one there um, that we've really tried to listen and respond to the community through neighborhood meetings, which you'll see through the next several slides. Uh, yeah, Dan again, Dick Wells. So here's the original master plan that was developed a few months ago. And I mentioned before, we're now calling option A. Again, our directive was to fit all 13 field operations onto a campus, um, 12 divisions, and then the, the fuel island, which we were able to achieve. Uh, six of those divisions are uh, in the MSO building, which is um, both 1B and 4 there. The next, so the next slide, neighborhood feedback. As I mentioned before, uh, part of the master planning process, you know, really listening to the neighbors, and this is a summary of what we've heard. Um, Proximity to the neighborhood, it seemed tight to them. The overall size of the operation concerned them. They were concerned about unsightly views and noises, uh, light pollution at night. Uh, there was concerns about traffic congestion and disruption of the open space that they were kind of used to. Um, concerns about property value destabilization and odors, site contamination and hazardous materials. Um, and it was, you know, really listening to them that made us on our on our end kind of sit down and and, and come back with the idea that what if we had a, a slightly tighter campus that focused our energies on just a few key divisions and tried to alleviate these concerns. So a um, little context uh, about how option B was developed. It's almost, as the more we looked at it, the farmland site is almost, it almost feels like a tale of two sites, you know, from, this, from the same spot you look one way and the impression is of a neighborhood and um, green and trees and grass uh, from that same spot. You look the other way and the impression is of an industrial site that's in serious need of remediation. So Alex, you can go back one. So this image is looking north showing the neighborhood and the green space. And you can see that dashed white line. That's the outline of the uh, conditioned vehicle storage that would be part of phase four in, the, in, uh, in option A. The next slide, kind of from the same spot, instead of looking north, looking east, and you can kind of see um, more of an industrial uh, situation there. Again, tail of two sites. So as you'll see in the option B, we looked into reducing the number of divisions on the campus and really locating those key uh, ones that benefit uh, most. Uh, can you go back one, Alex? Sorry. Yeah, locating the key ones on this side of uh, on the, the site. And then a couple more drone images just kind of give you a sense of this kind of uh, tail of two sites too. So here looking south with the neighborhood on the right, um, bag building in the foreground, another drone image. So it was really important to the neighborhood to really, you know, they're, they've grown accustomed to that green buffer space um, with that kind of emergency access road running down it. Last image kind of showing the entrance to the site. You can, you can see the, the kind of, you can almost draw a dashed line between those two conditions. And I'll turn it over to Aaron to talk a little bit about uh, what we talked to you about last time we were here that when we had mentioned we were interested in looking into an option B. 
Okay, thanks, Stan. Aaron Gasper, CFS Engineers. Uh, so our team was tasked with creating more space, more of a buffer from the neighborhood. So starting with our option A, we explored reducing operations to create more space on site, where we prioritized the MSO building, central maintenance, solid waste, and the fuel island. We relocated the MSO building to the east side of the site. Doing this will uh, preserve the green space to the east of the residential area for a natural buffer. Central maintenance and solid waste will remain in the same locations. Uh, solid waste will have an altered layout, as you will see shortly. And the fuel island will move to the south of central maintenance. HHW, horticulture, forestry, and facilities were removed from the site. We have and will continue to expand on strategies to limit sight lines, sound, and increase biodiversity. We also explored alternate campus entrances. One we explored is the dashed arrow to the bottom right. This would be a road along the drainage way to Adventure Park Drive. Uh, this option would have added 2,100 to 2,200 linear feet of roadway, removed further area from the lot to the south, and at an additional cost of approximately one and a half to two million dollars. Uh, the next option we looked at is the other dashed arrow to the west. While this would have shifted the entrance road east, uh, the site vehicles would have still ended up at 19th and O'Connell, and also we would need further area removed from the lot to the south. The advantage to our recommended drive as shown is it points site vehicles south towards 23rd and O'Connell instead of west towards 19th Street. Our team feels we can more cost-effectively install strategies to limit sounds from the neighborhood uh, using berms, wall, uh, walls, landscaping, fencing, et cetera, on the west side of, it, of the entrance road. Uh, with that, I'll pass it on to Andrew to further discuss this option. Good evening, uh, Mayor and Council Members. Andrew Cooper, Authorial Architects in St. Paul, Minnesota. I'm going to take a few minutes here to uh, orient you with to option B uh, and explain to you uh, how we move things around and then what some of the neighborhood feedback was when we presented this to them. So as you can see in this particular option to build on what some of what Aaron had described, uh, the fuel island, uh, we did move uh, further to the east and a little bit further south uh, from its previous location. Um, the MSO building, as Aaron described, um, moves as far east as uh, it can physically go on, on the buildable uh, area of this particular property, uh, which is now uh, further down the hill from where um, uh, solid waste and CMG are. Uh, CMG does remain essentially in the same location. Uh, I think uh, a key that you'll see here located to the west of that is an acoustic wall in Berm, which I'll build on uh, in the next slide. And then solid waste, um, we moved uh, up the hill, but still uh, as far uh, east as we can push that to maintain that critical relationship with uh, central maintenance. Uh, and then we also looked at how we can screen uh, that, those operations with bur uh, berming. You can see also on here that we are preserving that open space uh, that is along the west side of the property. On the next slide, um, 
So some of the features and considerations uh, for this option, it is a less dense uh, campus. So you can see that simply by going back and forth between the A and B options, there are less projects, less uh, construction projects, less buildings on this uh, particular site. Uh, the distance uh, from uh, the property line now to the MSO facility, which is 1B and 4, is well over 1,000 feet. Uh, the distance from uh, CMG uh, to the property line uh, is in the three to 400 uh, foot range. Uh, that large earth berm and sound wall we did add to the uh, west side of CMG as well as to the west side of solid waste uh, to help uh, reduce uh, noise pollution, but also uh, screen activity, daily activity from those facilities. We preserve that open space um, uh, along the west side. Uh, a key to with uh, option B is that there are going to, uh, per our mandate with the master plan process, uh, there are going to need to be some separate strategies uh, needed for the forestry, horticulture, and facilities divisions uh, located at their current locations or off campus at another uh, area. Um, through our discussions with staff, we feel like there's some uh, good opportunities in those areas. Um, and with this particular plan, um, some remediation would need to occur before the phase one construction and phase one in this instance um, is 1A and 1B. And I'll get to some of the other considerations um, that might be in phase one as well. Uh, we did review this plan uh, with the divisions that are currently located here with MSO, with solid waste uh, and with uh, CMG. And I'll, I'll build on uh, that towards the end of uh, my little uh, time here on how they received this particular option. Um, on the next slide here, uh, so we presented this plan uh, to the neighborhood and overwhelmingly this uh, option was preferred uh, over option uh, A. Uh, the new berms and sound walls uh, and trees shown to the west side of the solid uh, CMG and solid waste were very important. Uh, and some of the feedback we heard is that those need to be really included in the first phase of the project um, so that uh, they're very critical to maintain uh, throughout the course of any uh, design phases uh, and as part of any uh, cost uh, analysis for the project. Uh, more detailed drawings are gonna be needed uh, to really show, illustrate the heights of the buildings themselves and some of the uh, activities and the appearances. Uh, we did do some of that as part of the original master planning project uh, but we'll need to update those as building geometry has changed and location has changed. Uh, those will just need to be simply updated uh, and to address some of the uh, functionality that has been uh, negotiated with uh, MSO and solid waste and CMG on their particular facilities. Uh, that West Road now that we're showing that runs uh, from the CMG, which is number two in this slide to the north, uh, is simply an emergency use only. It is not meant for anything in terms of operational traffic. And then I think probably the biggest key is that as we move forward in the design process uh, through certain steps uh, to continue reaching out to the entire neighborhood group with updates uh, that illustrate uh, additional design considerations on the building aesthetics, uh, what the acoustical wall looks like, what the berm looks like, what the final landscaping tends to look like, uh, and that was uh, something that we're very happy to continue doing throughout the process. On the next slide is our kind of uh, 
preference. And we do uh, really prefer the B, option B over option A, uh, considering the, the feedback we got in the excellent dialogue we had at the last uh, neighborhood meeting. Um, also kind of the reception from MSO staff uh, as uh, CMG staff and solid waste really they thought this was a very good plan. They also didn't want to be right next to the neighbors. So pushing uh, MSO to the far east um, did make some sense. Um, there is some increased sustainability aspects uh, related to uh, preserving that open space. Uh, we're creating distance. Uh, so, you know, from a environmental quality for not just on site, but the neighbors, uh, we are reducing that uh, noise potential impact, uh, but then also uh, creating that open space for um, just green and beautification. Uh, the MSO building is going to be built on fat, flat ground. The one key with that open space, and you can kind of see it where it says open space, there's a lot of contour and a lot of grade change uh, that we were negotiating with in option A. Uh, option B, uh, the entirety of 1B and 4 in this particular plan is all essentially on flat ground. Uh, there is a more efficient site operation in building footprint because things are closer together. There's some more uh, organizational relationship uh, that works out uh, uh, very well on this particular plan. The buildings in this case are also uh, shielding from vehicle noise. Uh, and then ultimately this, the primary goal is that this phase one is a lot further from the neighborhood and allows uh, the landscaping, whether it's the mature existing trees or supplementing uh, those that existing landscape buffer along the west property to really uh, mature and create that visual block. Hey, uh, Andrew, this is Dan again with Dake Wells. I was wondering if uh, Alex, you could toggle just back and forth a couple of times to just kind of show the two. Yeah, just to show the difference between the two, like back and forth. I'll almost just take option B and those two slides. Yeah, maybe just a couple back and forth, because I know that really helped the neighborhood kind of see. And as, as Andrew mentioned, you can see the central maintenance garage kind of stays where it is. And then we were able to shift the other pieces around. Just curious, what is the, um, on option B, you, you, you've taken a little bit of land from the, the industrial parcel and you have like a square parking lot and then like a line. What What is that back there, down there in the corner? So Currently down in that corner of the property is the uh, what is called the bulk warehouse, and that's where the city's salt storage is currently at. Um, so utilizing that as part of this property um, and then putting some of those other site support areas, whether it's bulk storage of materials or, um, you know, uh, kind of work Got space. It. Okay, thanks. Where, where, where is your exit road? I know you got on the west side there, that's supposed to be for emergencies. Is there another road access? Uh, Andrew Cooper from Mortal Architects. Sorry, I didn't do that last time. Uh, the, our primary access is entirely at uh, the 19th and O'Connell. And as uh, Aaron uh, described, with that north-south orientation, it's directing all traffic due south. The 
the drive I was referring to, Commissioner, um, that is emergency only is coming off that uh, uh, northwest corner of the lot uh, by uh, building number two there. Okay. Thank you. Good questions. Thank you. That's good, Alex. Okay, um, <clears throat> project schedule. Uh, the schedule is currently set up for each phase to be constructed uh, consecutively instead of concurrently to, to spread out the costs over multiple years and limit how many field operations divisions are relocating at one time. The phasing is prioritized based on operational need and adjacencies, uh, basically referring back to that uh, table that Dan that Dan showed with the red and the pink and the white boxes. Um, so, for example, based on the flooding concerns at 11th and Haskell, the fuel island um, really must be part of phase one. Um, the schedule is dependent on the farmland remediation project and KDHE approval of a new remediation plan, which includes capping from the field operations campus buildings and pavement. Uh, Trevor referred to that earlier in the um, Connected City presentation. We've had preliminary meetings with KDHE on requirements to, to revise the remediation documents and we're, we're making sure to include um, capping as one of the strategies. Um, just on here, uh, the let's see so we're at the the dashed red line right now um we're getting ready to start the planning and entitlements uh which would be a development plans um rezoning um any sort of associated documents with that those documents would have um you know the, the berms and the walls and, and things like that that uh, would memorialize those uh, features so that we would have to um, const construct those. I know one of the concerns from from the neighborhood is that we say that we'll we'll put those um, on the site and construct those, and then and then we won't. So if we show those in those plans, um, then we'll have to follow those plans. Uh, the next time we would be um, probably coming back. Uh, for for an update would be towards the end of planning entitlements and schematic design. Um, the, a lot of those documents do require planning commission approval and as well as city commission approval. Uh, prior to that, we'd have a public meeting again, and then we'd be able to report to the to the planning commission and city commission what we heard uh, during those meetings. Next slide. Uh, so. This slide has the CIP funding and expenditures. Um, project uh, funding and expenditures were entered into OpenGov to determine the annual funding requirements for the CIP. This chart shows projected funding in green, uh, design costs in gray, and construction costs in yellow for each phase of the project and for each year. Uh, while this chart doesn't include specific funding types, the project generally uh, will require general obligation and revenue bond funding. Um, we will continue to evaluate funding and phasing options for the project, including bond capacity and the impact on um, utility rates. Uh, I mentioned before, coordinating funding with the farmland remediation project 
um, seeking grants for redevelopment of the remediation site, uh, which could help offset some of these costs. And then, you know, as we're going through schematic design, um, reducing scope and value engineering of each project phase um, as needed, and then deferring project phases until funding is available. Next slide. So uh, next steps, while we're not requesting a specific action item tonight, we are seeking input on, on the options we presented and, and option B, which is preferred by the neighborhood and the design team. We feel this layout meets the operational needs of the divisions with the most critical issues and addresses many of the concerns we've heard during previous neighborhood meetings. Uh, the next steps will be to proceed with planning entitlement documents and schematic design for phases one and two, so shown on the schedule slide. And then as part of schematic design, the team will develop more accurate cost estimates for the project that we can use to update the CIP. And with that, uh, we would be happy to answer any questions you have. Any questions? Yeah, I, go ahead. I got a couple here. <clears throat> so when will we get to see the detailed um, or the costs? Um, re, you're going to redo the costs. I understand that. When are we going to going to get to see what those are specifically, and and what funds those are going to come out of, and how and how they're going to be paid for? I know we we're talking about bonding, but what funds are those going to come out of, and how does that impact our ability to bond projects going forward that on, on infrastructure? This is Andy Enns, engineering program manager. Um, so in OpenGov, I did, uh, we did enter those, um, uh, or I entered those based on the, the project um, specific to the funds. So um, there's a significant utility uh, revenue bond um, portion for the MSO building because it, it would have water, wastewater um, uh, in there. There's uh, phase phase three, which is solid waste, is um, would would impact those rates. Um, phase two CMG. Um, it's there's some some discussion on how uh, that would be funded if it's kind of based on the the ratio of of service orders or hours uh, spent on each department, or if it's uh, you know general obligation. Um, uh, fund and then it's it's spread across the general fund. So that's still to be determined um, with that. But uh, for example, I think um, solid waste is about forty percent of the the hours um, associated with work orders for CMG. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that forty percent of the funding would have to be associated with solid waste. So um, it it is in OpenGov. Um, that that way, but um, you know that that will be updated. Okay. So you 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 had indicated that this would impact utility rates. So I'm assuming that's going to make them go up, given the fact that we've been really updating our utility rates pretty significantly in the past several years um, at a pretty good clip. Are, are you indicating that that's even going to start raising the utility rates even more above what we've been doing? 
um, Andy Enns, engineering program manager. Um, that's, you know, that's um, part of the scoring for OpenGov is uh, looking at how that also fits in the rate model and what we have for the rates over the next five years. And so, uh, you know, I think there will have to be some prioritization of projects. And if, um, it, at this time, it's, it's not necessarily raising the rates more than than what is projected it's just are there some projects that have to be um delayed some other projects you know if they score lower in open gov then um that that determination that will have to be made but i just to follow up on that question these some of these numbers are already in our rate model, correct? I mean, our CIP included some of these models. We've had them in the CIP for a while. This is not like we're adding something brand new we've never seen before into the rate model, correct? That's correct. Yes. Um, the, the the CIP funding uh, for this project um, has, has changed over time, but um, the, um, yeah, that's correct on the, any other questions i did want to make sure i had myself i thought i had myself oriented on this map and then something you said in response to vice mayor's question confused me so i just want to make sure the the road either of the roads neither of them would be 19th and o'connell that is not a road you are intending to use for regular truck traffic is that correct? The, the access will be at 19th and O'Connell, but it will direct uh, traffic south to 23rd and O'Connell. Um, 19th Street is not a, a truck route. And so the, the only um, vehicles on 19th Street will be for local service on 19th Street there. But that, that is the primary access at 19th and O'Connell. The access to the north to 15th Street is only for emergency vehicles. Okay, thank you. Any other questions? Let's go ahead then and see if there's any public comment on this. Joe Taylor. My husband and I live on Genesee Street, and on one of the maps, there's a football-shaped neighborhood. We live at the northeast top of that football. Um, and somewhere I found in the city literature that this area of Lawrence is one of the most culturally, racially, and economically diverse neighborhoods uh, in Lawrence, and we love living there. I have to tell you that. And we are very appreciative of the city and the architect's responsiveness to our neighborhood concerns. We have had good turnouts uh, and our neighbors have expressed their concerns. We would like a couple of, we would love to have that road moved more to the east than they have moved it. But in all fairness, I have to say it will not really affect me. It will affect some three to 400 people who live in the mobile homes much more than it will affect 
people who live further up, further north. We would also like assurance throughout that the measures that have been proposed to reduce uh, sightline, noise, fumes will work. We would hate to get to the end of the project and say, it's noisy, but we don't have any more money. So that, that is an on, ongoing concern for us. We would also appreciate, as the, um, as the city engineer has noted, that they will keep in contact with the neighborhood and will keep informing us of the progress as they make it and that they will uh, listen and be as responsive as they have in the past. Thank you. Hi, Phil Engelhart, my wife, Peggy. Uh, you all are in budget season, fast approaching. Uh, we wanted to take our three minutes make some comments on this particular capital project. Uh, we think it's a really excellent example to illustrate some of the difficult problems and decisions that you'll face as you try to reconcile the notion of fiscal stewardship and uh, principles of equity with a really ambitious slate of debt financed projects that are put before you in the form of the recommended CIP. First slide, please. I, I need. Oh, you want? Yeah. So. Okay. Please. Uh, I I need some help. I don't know what I'm looking. Oh, for. Under public uh, under attachment. The uh, last. I, I was told I had to present it as PDF. Yeah. Sorry, Porter. I wasn't aware that he wanted it shown during the. Hang on, just a second. Right here. Yes. Oh no. No, 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 keep going down. On the agenda item. Under the regular, oh, there you go. <laughs> and then it's all, all the way, way to, yeah. to the bottom. Yeah. Uh, this one. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Here we go. And that, that didn't come out very well, but this is from the 22 to 26 CIP, uh, shows the funding sources or the, the funds uh, by year. Uh, what you see there, uh, geo debt top line, the other three are enterprise. Okay. You see the yearly totals, 31 million, 2021. Uh, the construction estimate at that time was 64. So you only had 48% of the funding 2021 identified. And much of that, 53% of that was going to be in terms of enterprise funding which translates directly into charges for service, okay? We've been raising rates. We're gonna to need to continue to raise rates, need to be thinking about that. We believe that, and I talk to people all the time, you know, we, we believe that we have equity problems when you're unduly burdening low, moderate, and fixed income people. Next slide, please. Uh, this is the 20, this is Andy's presentation here. Uh, if there is a relevant point, and I know all numbers are squishy, okay? But if you compare last year's phase one, phase two numbers to this year's phase one, phase two, 14% increase, okay? Not surprising given, given everything else. Already talking about, you know, uh, the stuff under number two, I won't beat you up on that. 
go back to my next slide, please. Uh, yeah, again, you know, bottom line, you all have seen this a couple times. I continue to show it, you know, and I'll continue to update it and show it and bother you. Uh, New, new debt normal by 2026, 60% more per capita, okay? Where's it going to come from, okay? How much of that's going to be, you know, charges for service? How much of it's going to be property tax increases? These are tough decisions. I certainly don't have any answers, but but you all need to face them as, as we go forward. Thanks. Thank you, Phil. Is there someone else? I, I see people. Oh, good. <laughs> Sharon Davis. I live in the neighborhood of 17th and Genesee. And when this was first proposed, it was overwhelming. It was like we have a wonderful, quiet neighborhood. Nobody really knows it's there. Lots of wildlife, a diverse group of incomes and ages, ethnic groups, families, just a really nice neighborhood. And the first plan was devastating. And I do appreciate the team listening to us and taking in, into account all of our concerns. And they did a a much better job in the second phase, the plan B. It moved most of that noise as far away as they could and still use this land. And especially for our neighborhood, it was a vast improvement. I do have concerns for the people in the mobile village. It's very close to them, but there are some measures in place to try to help them out. Um, I think there's probably a great need for some of this, but the cost is going to be great, and I, too, am concerned about what that will do to our utilities, energy cost. I had not heard that before about a possible cost in energies, and I know you all take it very seriously, what happens in the city, and I appreciate it, and I think there is opportunity to work through this and make it good for everybody. One concern I would have is the access road that's only for emergency that runs along the west edge. It currently is used quite a bit for construction that goes on over in Venture Park, and I would like to see that that road is not used for construction during the building phase of this, because that'll be a long a long time of construction and a lot of vehicles. It's not a safe place for heavy duty traffic to enter and exit on 15th Street. There's hills, there's the railroad track there. Um, that would be a concern I would really like to have addressed before this is finalized. I appreciate your time and thank you to the team once again for listening to us and redesigning and coming up with a more workable plan. And I wish you all luck in deciding what to do. Thank you. Hi, good evening. My name is Michael Hallman, uh, Vice President of the Brook Creek Neighborhood Association. Um, basically, we're in favor of Plan B. Um, we very much appreciate the citizen engagement process that has taken place. Um, 
Mr. Enns has been exemplary in how he's conducted that engagement process. Uh, unlike a very few other people in MSO sometimes that aren't quite so engaging. Um, but we, we very much appreciate how they made it very clear and transparent, how they conducted their meetings, um, gathered information, and they were responsive to the neighborhood. So the Neighborhood Association um, likes Plan B. We, of course, we defer to the neighbors, our neighbors who are immediately across the fence line. Uh, their concerns um, are supersede what the Neighborhood Association, but we're pretty much in agreement. Um, we definitely like that they've moved the facilities farther east. That will deal very much with, with the sound and fumes issues of that sort. Um, we are concerned, however, that they're, they're putting in berms and sound walls that will deal with, with lighting as well, in theory. But they don't know the design at this point until they do acoustic studies and such. So we would like to make sure that when it is constructed, that there are opportunities for the sound wall to be extended farther tall, you know, taller, so that there's flexibility in design. Um, we're very grateful that the city commission and in general uh, agreed that it's important to move this facility from 11th and Haskell. Brook Creek neighborhood has had to contend with that facility there for almost 50 years now, almost half a century. Um, Commissioner Littlejohn may be interested to know that originally that was proposed to be in Pickney neighborhood, uh, where the uh, north of the, the water treatment plant, but Pinckney was more organized. Brook Creek wasn't organized at that time. And so they put it in our neighborhood. Um, we don't wanna go from bad to worse though. We just wanna make sure this is done well. Uh, one concern we still have is that the road access connecting to O'Connell Road, if they extend it south as one of the options showed, it would connect to O'Connell south of 19th Street, which would pretty much physically assure that there wouldn't be traffic on 19th. So we like this, we appreciate Time. all they've done. Thank you. Thank you, is there any other further comment on this item in the room? That's everybody. Is there anyone online who would like to make comment on this item? There's no comment, Mayor. Great, let's bring it back to the commission. Any um, comments or further questions? I like option B. <laughs> I, uh, I agree with everyone. I, I really appreciate uh, city staff and myself working with the neighborhood and fully engaging them in the process, continuing that engagement so that uh, that, uh, that option could become available. Any other comments? Well, Thank you. <laughs> well, it doesn't look, looks like we have some next steps here, but not, not any particular direction. So um, let's just thank staff one more time for their good job. And well, everyone who's worked on this, um, we really appreciate what you've done. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, commissioners. You guys. Thanks, everyone. Thanks.
That brings us to uh, commission items. Are there any commission items this evening? I have a quick commissioner item. I want to take a point of personal privilege. Um, USC has a fellows program. It's the Leonard D. Schaefer Fellows in Government Service Program. And we have a Lawrence native, a free state native, who was uh, chosen to participate in that program this summer. And that's um, Yav Gilas. He's here. Um, I won't make them stand. Um, we'll just have Kurt put them on a TV for a little bit. <laughs> um, but um, you know, I've reached out to me. And so um, I have him for this summer and he's going to be doing some policy research work on, on budgets. His, and I'll, I don't want to tell your story. I'll let you tell your story. But um, so he's going to be doing some policy research work around um, municipal budgets, um, economic development and forms of government. So um, I'll be pinging some city staff. Um, so be nice to my intern. Um, <laughs> but you all, did you want to stand and say anything not to put you sure. on the spot? Um, so thank you for that introduction, Amber. Um, really excited to work with you guys this summer. Um, you all, like she touched on, I'm, I'm Lawrence native. I've lived here my whole life. I went to Free State. Um, now I'm at the University of Southern California studying uh, political economy with a minor in public policy and law. Um, and yeah, I'm just really excited to kind of dive into local government. I think it's uh, kind of neglected these days uh, nationally. So thought, you know, why not? Might as well. <laughs> Looking forward to a great summer. Thank Looking forward to it. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Commissioner. Anything else? Okay, uh, that brings us to the city manager's report. Thank you, Mayor. Um, just uh, three items. One is the sales tax report, which uh, generally is is showing good trend, um, which we've been excited and grateful to see. Um, the other is our uh, constantly evolving um, <laughs> plan of uh, future agenda items and work sessions. Uh, not as much change this time as we've seen in the past, but we've got a lot uh, on the agenda that we'll be working to make sure that we prioritize and, and get in front of you. Uh, the budget is approaching and that will be plenty of meeting time as well. Lastly, uh, just highlighting um, with our uh, new chief, and we'll keep calling him new for a while, um, he has done some assessment and some reorganization and really uh, excited to announce the uh, promotion of uh, uh, two deputy chiefs, a new position, uh, but uh, Chief Deputy Chief Brixius and Deputy Chief Hefley um, both were promoted um, to uh, both who served as interim chiefs during uh, before his arrival and the um the office of the chief has um uh has promoted a um a position for executive officer of diversity and community engagement and that's lieutenant myron grady and that will be part of direct report to the office of the chief which i think all three of these are really exciting announcements and we wanted to share those with you wonderful thank you so much any questions <laughs> This is a public comment item. Are there any public comments on the city manager's report? Is there anyone online who would like to make a public comment on the city manager's report? 
there's no comment. Okay, great. Um, that brings us to the calendar. Is there any uh, changes or things we need to bring attention to on our calendar? Sounds like a no. <laughs> uh, I would entertain any motions. Move to adjourn. Second. I have a first and a second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 Uh, passes five to zero. Thanks, everyone.